power on. Accessing historical database. Year 2020. The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech. Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. The tech giants try to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. Woo, the man of tomorrow is here. And, uh, <laughs> you no. <laughs> Sorry. I was going to do something terrible, Ellen. You're already being bad. <laughs> I know, I know. I was going to say, it's like, all right, you can get up from it. I'm sorry. We won't do, we won't go there. Anyway. <laughs> can your listeners not handle it? I, I, I don't, well. Should they not know what goes on in this studio? I can barely handle it. I don't know how anyone else is going <laughs> to, if they all only right. knew. Parental controls on your listeners. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. You know, it, yeah, if this was on a Spotify or something, maybe they'd control what you could hear, you know, and if it just didn't fit in with the agenda, I don't know. Well, anyway, <laughs> why I went far. The agenda. But, yeah, the agenda. <laughs> yeah, they, them, those. Anyway, no, I went far, but we will touch on that in an upcoming uh, story that we're going to cover in this episode. But anyway, Ellen, welcome to the show. Woo. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad uh, to be here. It hasn't been too long since you've been on. Only a few weeks. Yeah. But yeah. it was so much fun. I wanted to come back. Actually, you know, when I earlier today, in fact, I'll probably read it on the air, um, in the Sovereign Tech Telegram group, which I know you keep a, a very, very uh, voyeuristic eye on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they... Um, uh, there was we got complimented on because the last time you're on was episode 375. I think this is number 378. And uh, we might read into some of those comments to hopefully justify other things we're going to talk about, because for some oh. reason, every time you come on this show, uh, it seems like I, I end up talking about aliens when <laughs> oh. I'm like the last guy to even bother, you know, Oh, I wonder why that is. It's not like you actually are really interested in aliens. In fact, you know, why don't you tell the listeners what it is that you're reading right now? Nice segue. That is good. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was really good. But I'm not gonna. I'm. I, I'm not gonna tell them what I'm reading right now. <laughs> not, not that book. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell them about the book I was reading before that book. But I'm not going to talk about that book. All right. Well, let's just say it involves aliens, well, oh, multiple races. Might, I might as well talk about it now. Well, I'm not going into any details. They don't need to know how terrible it is when you talk about right. it with me. So, okay. <laughs> so you and I, uh, 
you know, when we have free time or whatever, you know, or personal time, whatever that takes shape as, right? Uh, yeah, we'll listen to Audible. We talk about this a lot. You know, we'll listen to audiobooks or something or, I don't know, whatever. Uh, you've been watching a lot of Harlan Ellison videos lately, actually. I, I don't, I don't th- <laughs> Yeah, I'm just starting to introduce myself to him and some of the content that he's created. Like, I listened to a collection of his short stories recently mm-hmm. and... Um, he's done multiple interviews on the Tom Schneider show, which I find hilarious and entertaining. And I played one of those actually in a recent episode. It you was, did? Yeah. It's the 374 or something like that. Anyway. Yeah. But th- there are several others and, um, yeah, I love all of them. I yeah. just think they're so funny and he's got such a rich personality with so many stories. No, it's true. It's true. Um, I want to talk more about that in a second, but, um, to, to get into what we're reading, because I want to hear what you're reading as well, beyond that, beyond Harlan. So, so you kind of gave one. So I guess we'll give two here all together, all told. Uh, so the weird-ass book that I am reading. And folks, I don't buy an ounce of this. So don't <laughs> don't think, oh, the Golden Stallion's gone crazy. It's you just know. for fun. The, yeah, this is really just for fun. Though I'll tell you, I mean, you could read a book like this and like every sentence is a fucking story prompt. If you're like a science fiction writer, I mean, you, you would, you could have a field day. Creative minds, I bet would really feed on this kind of story. Absolutely. So the book is called dark fleet. Um, dark, hold on here. I'll, I'll, I'll pull it up. Yeah. Dark fleet, the secret Nazi space program and the battle for the solar system by Les or Len Caston. Can you get with that? Oh boy, uh, this is a hell of a book. I mean, <laughs> no, th- this guy has almost, I mean, there's points where he gets into a little bit of history around World War One and World War Two, and that's easy enough information to find. He quotes regularly from Wikipedia. Um, Direct quote? Like, you look at the Wikipedia page and it's like he's reading from it? No, he actually says, from Wikipedia. Like, he'll, <gasps> he'll say that. This, this, wow. Yeah, oh, this that guy, is so cheap. I know. This guy, well, this, oh, it gets better. Oh, <laughs> Len. Well, I know you said that he's he's a little scant with the references. And, like, with World War One and Two stuff, some of that you can get away with as, mm-hmm. like, general knowledge. Yeah. But it seems like he takes that and then just mm. goes, like, way out. Well, here's the beauty. Lane. So what this guy, this guy's written, like, has written, I don't know, three, four books, something along those lines. I actually read his previous book, too, uh, Alien World Order, it's called. <laughs> and it's all about, like, the reptilian plan to conquer the Earth or whatever the fuck. Um, oh, oh. <laughs> I don't even want to give it the time of day, at least not on my show. But I, I think it's it's really great to discuss this. It gives some moments of hilarity. Okay, well, I promise that the next book I'm going to talk about is actually worth your time, is actually worthwhile. <laughs> Uh, but this book, so here's the thing, like in this book, which just came out, Dark Fleet just came out maybe a month or two ago. He constantly references his previous books. Okay. He's like, as laid out in Alien World Order. And, but here's the problem. Like, so I've read the previous books and he doesn't have any evidence to back up anything that he's really saying. He's basically like writing out. I mean, it reads like a, like a Hollywood movie script. You know, it doesn't it doesn't read like a, a really. I mean, because there's guys out there that you know that are in that vein and that say some pretty wacky shit that um, at least try to bolster their claims, at least try to present some evidence. 
Um, or guys that aren't so wacky. I mean, but, you know, I mean, you have like Nick Redfern, Zach Ryasichin, even, you know, Eric right. Von Daniken and their type. Ancient alien stuff. Yeah, your ancient alien guys. I mean, at least some of them in some of their books are like Philip Coppins. And they they will try to present some evidence. And this guy, literally, his evidence is like websites, uh, you know, which which also present no evidence. And I go to them and, you know, and I look, uh, obviously. Or... Uh, like people that have visions. So he he wrote his own set of references and then references them in this book that you're reading. It's genius. As if it's some sort of literary accomplishment or it's some sort of proof. Yeah, right. Because, I mean, to, to a not so intelligent person, I think this would hook them in. I mean, just based on like the, the subheaders for the subtitles for these books. Um, But then, you know, like... If you didn't bother to go back, you know, and if you didn't read his previous work, you might think that, oh, chapter seven of Alien World Order explains everything and it has all of his evidence and all that. And because that that's a like this book short, Alien World Order is an incredibly long book. It's like 15 hours as to where this oh, one's wow. only. Yeah, this one's only like six. Oh, fortunate. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I listen at like 2.5 X or so around there, two to 2.5 X. And uh, so I can get through that pretty quickly, you know, but yeah, I mean, it, it's ingenious because he, there's probably a lot of people who think, oh, this guy, he's got all the proof. He's got it oh, all when sure. it's his own fucking books. When you, when you read like as referenced or a reference that says mm-hmm. like, as in this book, this chapter, it's all explained. Right. That, that is such a shortcut. To people's trust. Now, a lot of reading. I agree. And, and, and admittedly, there are other ancient alien guys that will kind of pull this off or they self-reference each other. And there's even times where it happens and, and it's and it's questionable. Like there's a book called Dark Mission, which I actually think is a very worthwhile read, even though I think both Richard Hoagland and uh, Mike Barra are both uh, a, a little off their rocker. Okay. And whatever people would think if people knew half of what I actually think, they they probably think I was off my rocker, too. So whatever, you know, misery loves company uh, where they will they reference actually a book that I have recommended you read. And I've recommended everybody to read because I think it's a brilliant book, even though the evidence at certain point, some of it. Well, you can actually tell me what you think of it, but they reference Hiram Key Revisited. Now, not the Hiram Key. That's a different book. That's a very popular book. Hiram Key Revisited is somewhat of a sequel that I think is actually far better. Uh, but anyway, here in Key Revisited, they will reference that in Dark Mission and treat it as evidence of wacky shit happening on the moon. And like, it's not, you know, the, the, the evidence, because and, and there's the thing, like when you actually read these other books, you know that that they're not they're not coming with a whole lot of evidence to the game. Yeah, at best these books have some really shaky ground. Right. Or they're making assumptions or running with a certain conclusion that doesn't have a lot of supportive evidence. Exactly. But that's a big problem in a lot of this, shall we call UFOlogy or, you know, fan of, of UAPs. Last time you were on, that's what we talked about. And I mean, you know, we, we discussed that. We think, well, UAP, UAPs are a thing. Um, and it's good to get it away from the baggage of UFOs and, you know, but we should be studying UAPs, you know, and then, and, and take them seriously and so on. Uh, who knows what they actually are, but you know, let's take them seriously. Uh, 
Anyway, this is a thing that happens in these groups where it all becomes like this. Everybody's referencing each other or a person's referencing like even David Hatcher Childress, who I largely like. And I think he does some good work. He references back to his own fucking work or everybody will reference Eric Von Daniken or everybody will reference Sitchin, which that's not a bad idea. But um, so they're building this large library of references, but it's basically built on pillars of salt is what you're saying. Absolutely. Yes. Well said. Uh, Yeah, it's all self-referential. And 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 unless you've actually read all of these books, you don't realize, well, shit, there's not a whole lot of evidence here. And that's okay. And it's not like that's necessarily a bad thing because, you know, some things might be very true, even if you don't have a ton of evidence for it. Right. I mean, and that that's okay. Uh, but the problem is, is that I think it tricks a lot of the dum-dums into thinking there's a ton of evidence for this shit. And, you know, and then they don't realize that, that no, that that's not true. And, and anyway, that's, I guess that's the magic of books, even when they're an audio book form. Um, okay, yeah. so tell us a little bit more about this book that you're reading right now. Oh, boy. So, not, I mean, it's not like it's presenting. I mean, there's some information that I guess I could call new that I've never heard anybody really claim before in this thing. Um, th- so this is, by the way, this reference. is a very serious tech show, folks. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we will talk about tech and some science and some other good stuff a little later. Uh, but <laughs> for if you're a first time listener for some reason, this is not our usual fare. Um, no, Brian is very educated and he always provides value. Thank you. I'll uh, I'll send you some Bitcoin later. <laughs> <laughs> My usual fee. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, this is a fucking book. Uh, so, I mean, okay, like Nazis in space, is that new territory for me? No. In fact, you've been a part of many uh, 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 fictional uh, audio theater mm-hmm. that that I have done where that's exactly what it's dealing with is the, the villains in it are literally Nazis in space. And Nazis in Antarctica. Right, right. So, Nothing, you know, even though this book is fresh, this book is brand new. I mean, it's not delivering anything that I haven't really ever heard before, thought about or whatever, you know. Um, But, yeah, this guy is basically making this huge case that there are there is this galactic federation um, that went to war with the reptilians of the Draco Empire, which who are also the. Uh, master race over the greys. The greys kind of work for them. And I think they're all from the Andromeda galaxy. And I mean, you're, you're at like instantly like, wait, how do you know they're from the Andromeda galaxy? Like, how do you even get evidence for that? And it's like, yeah, exactly. You can't, you dumb shit. But (laughs) (laughs) it's so hard for me to listen to you describe this because you're, you're saying the most ridiculous stuff and you're like staring at me so seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I mean, I wish like what this guy should do and and maybe this is what like a part of me wonders, like what he should do is he should be writing this as novels. Like what you read in this book would be a tremendous it would be a tremendous science fiction series that would rival the foundation or Lensman or uh, Dominic Flandry or any of these cats. I mean, it would really it, it would it would rival that it's, it's on that scale. There's that much history. There's that much like thought that's put into all of this. I wouldn't be surprised if he put down a lot of the shit so that he could copyright it though. And he knows what he's doing. And 
Let's hope that's true, because otherwise he's just fucking nuts. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's all around visions and, and all this other wacky crap, which, you know, remote viewing and a lot. I, I've actually been I mean, this isn't an audiobook. I wish it was. I, I've actually been reading up some more on um, very legitimate, uh, uh, you know, well-funded um, research on ESP and things like this, uh, just, you know, in the past few years. Um, and you know, so I'm not like necessarily saying that, that, that kind of stuff is impossible or something like that. I mean, I largely, I don't believe it, but again, he, he, there's, there's no, where, where is the hard fucking evidence, you know, to, yeah, to like, that is to a challenge for some of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of history has been wiped away by time. So how can you prove it? That's true. That's true. I mean, and there's other things too to you know to to consider that. I mean, when you're, ah, uh, oh, never mind. I'm not even going to go there. Just this book is, yeah. So so basically, you have, um, I'll I'll say it quickly. You have these reptilians that they came to Earth before humans were here. They brought the dinosaurs here because the dinosaurs were their food. Venus is a Death Star, like literally, like <laughs> like something out of Star Wars. Um, and the Atlans came here at some point and founded Atlantis. And then they went to war with the reptilians. They lost. And that's why the, the continent sunk. And then they, maybe a tribe of them ran off to the moon, but the reptilians already have a lunar moon base. The Nazis went to the moon in 1942 and they have a moon base there. Um, it is interesting. He does get into something I've talked about many times on my show, which is alternative three. Um, which is was a documentary, or it was the final episode of a documentary series from the 70s called Science Report. He doesn't, he claims that like it's actual footage. When no, we like you you can actually we know the models that were used for this fucking footage of that supposedly the uh well the claim from from science report was that like so okay. <sighs> See, I could talk all episode about this shit. <laughs> you got me started. You got. <laughs> I just wanted to know about the book, but please continue. Alternative three. All right. So there, there's actually a book by Lee something. I forget his name. Uh, that that also goes into all this. But so so you there was this uh, uh, the the show called Science Report, kind of like Cosmos, but it was meant to be more of a weekly thing that was done on. British public television or what equated to public television for them. I mean, the BBC is effectively government. Anyway, that they didn't matter. use James Burke. No, as, no. Uh, they had this other guy who, who, you know, you took seriously and it was a serious show and it was just laying out. I mean, it was frankly, in many ways, it's kind of like sovereign tech just from the seventies and on TV. And they would, you know, do interviews and they would, you know, lay stuff out. It was very straight laced. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't far out or wacky or anything like that at all. Sounds very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, basic, but interesting, you know? And so the show was getting canned and they had their last episode was going to be like on April 1st. And so the producers of the show said, oh, let's have fun with this. Like if they're, if they're going to can us, you know, we're, we're going to have a good time. And so they filmed this entire last episode and it's, it, it, it looks like a straight laced documentary. The guy comes out and says, folks, we have some very, uh, you know, due to recently uh, uh, declassified documents, we have some very interesting information to share with you. And it's like on the whole show, they're uncovering this uh, conspiracy that the world's top minds were disappearing. It's like, well, where the fuck are they going? 
And as you're watching it, some of these people are actors that you know from other sh- other shit at the time, you know. So like, it's not real. Um, but as you're watching it, he eventually gets to the conclusion that they found out they were all getting shipped to Mars, and that there was a Soviet, a joint Soviet-U.S. mission to Mars in 1962, and. That you get at the end of it, at the end of science report, you get footage from the spaceship that's landing on Mars. And it's like the ground is falling out from underneath and you just go, oh, my God. And. Like, we know the models and everything that were made on the set of science report that that created that visage, you know, or that created that 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 video. Right. Like, we know it's not real. We know it. And this guy is laying it out. You can go on YouTube and you can watch the actual video of the landing. So he doesn't understand that this is a false idea. Like alternative three isn't a real thing. Yeah. I mean, so, so the guy who ended up writing the book, I, Oh, Lee Atkins, I think his name is anyway, the guy who ended up writing the book, he claims that, yeah, the science report special was bullshit, but it was based on reality. Like, like they, they fabricated it, but that was based on, but that, that all of that actually has happened. And so he has this whole book, you know, about it called titled alternative three. That's, that's what the conspiracy was called in science report was alternative three. And you can watch the whole damn thing. I think on YouTube, um, I've even like made a DVD of it. I mean, it's fun. It's interesting. You know, it's kind of like that alien autopsy thing that, uh, uh, that Jonathan Frakes did, which was total crap, but but it was fun, you know, to imagine for a little while, wow, what if we do have footage of Roswell aliens getting, you know, getting an autopsy done on. And, but this guy treats it as, yeah, you can go to YouTube amazingly and you can see this footage. It's like, no, jackass. <laughs> like, like, we know where this footage is from. And so, again, it's more of that he, he doesn't, and he's probably not wrong in thinking this. So I can't believe he's that much of an idiot. Like a part of me wants to think that he's like really buys into this or something. Um, or, or I mean that he, uh, uh, that he knows he's peddling crap. You know, he's a snake oil salesman, not to get into a reptilian conspiracy, but to put it simply, I guess he, I think he knows that most people don't bother to check references. And so he just runs with it and it's like, yep, I have all the evidence and I have the truth. Sure, especially people who listen to audiobooks, especially people who listen to audiobooks at 2.5x. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess you don't have to check the references if you've already read them. Well, that's the funny thing is that I've been doing, I've been reading this shit for years. So anyway, the book, yeah, I mean, you know, if you want to, uh, if you want to get into some kind of reptilian conspiracy nonsense, and and it is, uh, have a good time. Dark Fleet by Les, uh, Len Caston. So, Okay. <laughs> I've been talking forever. Uh, <laughs> what what have what have you been reading? Well, uh, as late today, I just finished a book called Roar, written by Stacy Sims, not by Katy Perry. No, <laughs> okay. are you kidding? What kind of book would she have to write? Well, I I mean, her song read. Roar. Do you remember? Uh, never mind. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing great. Yeah, MK Ultra. <laughs> <laughs> Ties right wait, in. Wait. Yeah. Wow. What a segue. All right. No, go, go ahead. Yeah. No. So this book is about um, female fitness. Yeah. So 
as most of you probably know, especially if you're into fitness, it's mm-hmm. dominated by men and met research on men. Uh, very little research exists specifically for women in the realm of fitness. Uh-huh. Um, like most supplements are made for men. Most workout tips that you get are made for mm-hmm. men. Um, like so much research that our society functions on uh, is based on men and like men aged 35 to 40 of an average body weight of like 150 to 170. Yeah. You know, so it's really not relatable to women. Uh, And the main point in this book that the author repeats over and over again is that women are not small men. We can't just do the same things that men do, but in smaller amounts and we Mm -hmm. can't eat the same things and recover the same way. Um, there are very and, particular aspects of your biology that you can take advantage of, beware of. Yeah, that was mainly my interest in reading this book was I wanted to learn more about how I could work with my physiology to increase uh, effectiveness and productivity and overall well-being Right. Uh, when it comes to fitness and, and health overall, which yeah. includes diet. Um. And this book was written with people who do extreme fitness in mind, like ultra marathoners or people who are doing triathlons. Um, And that's not me, but that's all right, because she still had some really useful information for just everyone. Um, Like the second chapter was specifically dedicated to the monthly hormone cycle Uh of women. Sure. And it went into more detail than I've ever heard, even in a health class. That's amazing. It it was amazing. Uh, let me tell you, there there were so many useful pieces of information in this book. Uh, it's not usually the kind of thing I would listen to, but, um, you know, I've, I've been focusing more on health recently. Well, I mean, and, you work out five days a week. I yeah, mean, yeah. And, and an hour or two a week, I mean, or an hour or two a day, I mean, um, you know, I mean, yeah, this is serious for you. It's important to me, right. especially since <clears throat> I just came out of... A long six-month period where I was sitting in a desk for, like, six to eight hours a day. In front of Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> well, at the beginning of the semester, at least I was able to, like, walk across campus and yeah. get in some exercise that way. But, yeah, since, uh, you know, things have been shut down, I've just been sitting at home in a desk. And now I'm on summer vacation, so I have time to work out. And I'm jumping full speed into it. Yeah. Um, and it's really great there. I mean, there were so many tips, uh, even just general tips. Like, I think I, I talked to you about this earlier and you were kind of surprised to hear it too. But um, like when you're doing extreme exercises or long bouts of activity, uh, straight drinking straight water doesn't hydrate you nearly enough. Um, like you have to include a little bit of salt and glucose. So you sprinkle in some salt into the water. Yeah, maybe a little maple syrup. To allow to absorb. Yeah, it has to do with osmotic pressure, but uh, essentially, like just drinking more water is going to make you, um, like pee out most of your hydration. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's just things like that. Like I never would have guessed. Yeah, Uh, I had never heard that before. I mean, and and I, I mean, I, I. Go to YouTube channels for fitness, podcasts for fitness. I read tons of books about fitness. I mean, and magazines even. Um, and I'd never heard that. Yeah. And that's something for everyone, not just right. for women. Right. 
Um, but as far as like the topics that she delved into, uh, it had to do with also like diet and nutrition, uh, specifically catering to the hormone cycle because like our hor- hormones as females are constantly in a state of flux throughout the month. Mm-hmm. Um, so like during different weeks, we may be feeling either tired and lethargic and a little more sad or really energized and, you know, needing to eat a lot more protein during certain times. Right. Um, yeah, that was another thing I was really amazed by is like women, uh, their muscles break down more quickly and it's harder for them to recover. So they actually need to eat a lot more protein when exercising um, in order to maintain their muscle mass. Right. Right. Which, I mean, that is a difference um, because like to maintain muscle mass for a male body is it actually doesn't take much to maintain uh, for growth and things like this. That's a, that's different. Um, then then you get into, you know, the gram per pound and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that that's yeah, I, I got my hands on an ebook copy of this. I'm intrigued to go through it myself. And, oh, and you want to learn there. about females? Yeah, physiology? yeah. Well, I mean, because you're totally right. Uh, I, I mean, the only book I have specifically for women's, uh, uh, you know, like weightlifting of any kind or strength training is a book from Arnold Schwarzenegger from literally 40 years ago. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like there's just I, I know there are more out there. Um but the point being is that, yeah, it is mostly dominant. You know, it is a space definitely dominated by by men in many ways. I mean, and there have yeah. been Muscle and Fitness hers, but that magazine tanked. I mean, Muscle and Fitness doesn't exist anymore either, but Muscle and Fitness hers or for her or whatever. I mean, that tanked 10 years ago. Like, you know, so so one could argue they, they felt like there wasn't even a, a market uh, signal. For that sort of thing, which I think is outrageous. And, and and some of the stuff you told me that's in this book, I mean, really like drives the point home. No strength training for women. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's so, so important for women to mm-hmm. do th- strength training specifically because right. of our, you know, like loss of iron every month or, um, you know, calcium. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's development of so many things in your body that are really necessary to maintain bone strength, especially as you age. Um, But anyway, yeah, I just found this book fascinating. And she even covers aspects of psychology that I think might explain uh, what you're talking about with women's, uh, the the magazine tanking. mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so I think basically what she was implying is that uh, with women's mental states, they have more of a likelihood to um, have a broad range of interests and not really categorize themselves as athletes. Whereas men, um, they're, they're more specific and focused, so they're more likely to call themselves athletes. So I wonder if that has something to do with it, like women not thinking nah. that they're necessarily athletes, mm-hmm. so not buying the magazine. I'm not really sure, but there there's so many different things about women that she really outlines and her main philosophy in this book, uh, which I really appreciate was focusing on the physiological differences because I think historically um, and even in recent history, Mm -hmm. when you hear women talk about the differences between males and females, as far as mental states uh, like 
physiology, psychology, whatever, hormone cycles, you name it. They try to minimize those as much as possible. The differences. And, yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, and they attribute it mostly to the way that women are socialized as they're growing up and sure. learning like gender roles and things like that. And those certainly play a role. But I think it's doing a disservice to women and their self-knowledge by ignoring and minimizing those differences because they are real. Sure. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I mean, and I think it's fantastic for a book of this nature to finally come out. And like I said, I know there have been others and there are certainly women who clearly, uh, you know, I mean, the like women's fitness competition has been a thing for a long time, you know, so clearly they have some idea of, of how, you know, how it's done and all this. But I mean, there's so much, especially when it comes to female physiology, that and we, I bring this example up many times on the show that, you know, we didn't even know the shape, the full shape of the clitoris until like 10, 15 years ago. I mean, it just, it, I mean, in the history of medical science, nobody had a fucking clue, you know, just how, you know, on the inside, particularly just how, you know, uh, big, you know, the clitoris is, right? Yeah, nobody was interested. Right. Nobody cared. Who's going to fund that study? Oh, it, it's on women. That's not interesting. It, it, exactly. Right. And so, yes, I mean, for people to think, I mean, I'm just saying that, yes, there is new, there are new things to be learned and I'm glad that it's being explored, um, with, as, particularly with this book. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. And uh, like the main focus for, um, like addressing these physiological differences, um, you know, she, she gives you pointers on like how to feed yourself and how to recover properly mm -hmm. and, and, like, she never talks about it as if, like, women are superior or men are superior or anything like that. She just says we're different but yep. equal, you know? Um, and she tries to teach you how to work with your biology in order to provide your body what it needs so it can make everything that it does. Um, which is why I'm a big fan of this book because I think a lot of fitness magazines or a lot of fitness books would probably recommend like supplements. They're just going to sell you gels. a supplement. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, they have products to sell and things that are, uh, quite possibly mostly artificial, mm -hmm. uh, that aren't really derived from anything natural. Um, and that's not really good for you. I mean, right. like it might provide something important for your body, but, um, I, I think there's actually like quite a bit of overlap between this book and how not to die by Michael Grieger uh -huh. because she's saying like eat really low on the food chain. Don't take antioxidant supplements. Don't take these other supplements. They're not going to do you any good. You need to get these nutrients from raw foods. Right. Um, so yeah, I was, I was really astonished by that. And yeah. I appreciate any time somebody recommends ways to stimulate your body's natural processes of, uh, you know, bringing out whatever a supplement would normally, you know, the result of a supplement would normally engage in, you know, like yeah. if you can raise your testosterone naturally for, you know, for guys, um, or, you know, whatever. Um, I, I think that that's a, that's, a, that's the right way to go. Yeah, and I've never really understood the desire for, like, all of these artificial supplements. Um, it makes me wonder, like, how do people think that our ancestors survived without these supplements? Yeah, see, uh, right. But with a lot of bodybuilding, you know, these guys are going to 
in human levels. Uh, and well, that's if you're going to inhuman levels, you mm -hmm. have to eat an inhuman amount of food. Like yeah. I, that's, I feel like that's a slightly different story if you're mm -hmm. trying to go for superhuman, but mm -hmm. if you're just going for extreme nutrition and fitness, that's something that's achievable with a normal food diet. Right. Yeah. Well, I, that's something we're, we're always learning more on too, uh, is, you know, like how does this, how does gut biome affect who we are and, uh, you know, even our personality and so on. Um, I mean, yeah, that's, I think that's an area where, well, we're learning <laughs> to put it simply. Yeah. And apparently, you know, I'm still learning about my own biology. Right. Well, there you go. There you go. Uh, you know, you brought up uh, do, do, anything else you want to bring up on this one? No, oh, I think that about covers it. There's my book review. Yeah. I, I give it a five stars. Absolutely. So I guess while we're going down the Sovereign Tech Book Club here quick, uh, I mean, you did mention Dr. Michael Greger. So that's the book that I, I actually did just finish was How to Survive a Pandemic. Okay. Obviously a very timely, this book just came out like last week. Yeah. And, I remember looking through Audible and I was like, hey, this book comes out on the third. And you're like, oh, that's tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it was weird too, because he just came out and I haven't even finished this book. Just in February, he came out with a new book. He came out with How Not to Diet. And you got to understand his books. It's not like uh, Dark Fleet here where it's six hours. <laughs> These are 22 hour opuses that he writes, you know, and because, he makes real references. To real oh, science. oh yeah. So I mean, there's many scientific there, papers. Yeah. You're going to have evidence, you know, I mean, you're going to have to have that fiber because the evidence is going to be pouring out of your ass. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I really appreciate this guy's, uh, this guy's work and he doesn't, I mean, he's all about plant-based and all that, but he doesn't like really toe a hard line, which I also appreciate. Um, you know, we never need to, I mean, getting dogmatic, that's where you run into problems a lot of times in life. Um, his How to Survive a Pandemic, I had no idea because like this guy's kind of hot now for being, you know, for, for pushing hard on, um, well, again, plant-based diet, you know, vegan, vegetarianism, etc. cetera. Uh, but again, he doesn't like pull a really hard line on that. You know, he kinda, he's not like a meat hater. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So which, again, like I said, I appreciate that. Um, and and I, I've enjoyed his work for that. But and How Not to Die. I think we both talked about that book um, on the show, at least in the past year. Oh, it's a wonderful book. It's fantastic. Uh, how Not to Die it. I have not I haven't finished that one yet. But when I saw this How to Survive a Pandemic, obviously with the present uh, uh, climate that we're in, I was like, well, hell, I got to read this right away, you know, and I did. And I got through all 20 hours pretty quickly. Um, it spends, this book spends, prob it's broken up into like four or five, five, or actually I think it's like six parts. Most of the time it is him and he has the credentials for it because he worked on AIDS and other things in the eighties and everything. This guy has been around. Um, he spends most of the time, he talks a lot about the Spanish flu. And he spends a lot of the time just laying out where these, you know, avian flus, H1N1, H5N1, COVID-19, coronaviruses, you know, et cetera, where all these things come from historically. And that's the bulk of the book. There's actually, I, I, I mean, and I'm not knocking it for this because I think all of that is incredibly important information, but very little of the book is actually a, like tips on what you can do to survive, uh, a, you know, a, a pandemic. Um, and a lot of it, frankly, does come down to like washing your hands. Like that's actually a really freaking big deal. 
um, in what in what he lays out. Now he gets pretty extreme, and he and he makes his case. I mean, folks, if I if anything of his solutions or anything that I say about what he wrote in his book sounds really extreme, check out the book first, because I guarantee you he'll make his case. You can disagree with him, and that's fine. But he's got the medical experience. He knows the history of how these viruses came to be in the human population. Right. He's not pulling the shit out of his ass. He's not. And, and also he's not, I mean, there might be points where he's appealing to legislation of some kind, but you, you know, you got to function in the modern world. If you're a doctor yeah. and an author and yeah. you're trying to make these large changes. Right. I well, mean, you don't have to, but no, no, right. Right. <laughs> but I mean, but he's, he's just making the point that, you know, it's not, if it's when, um, and that there's definitely going to be something far worse down the line, you know, than, than say COVID-19, sure. et cetera. And, and I think one of the most important things that I feel like this book lays out is that, you know, there's an old saying, which is, you know, don't, uh, uh, how does it go? Don't attribute to malice that which can be attributed to stupidity or, or that which can be, you know, However, that goes, which we've seen happen recently with the COVID nineteen. Well, well, actually, since the beginning. Tell me more. As as far as people attributing to malice the virus escaping and infecting the public. Oh well, that's what I'm. Yeah, that's what I was going to get at. Is that he makes the pretty clear case? No, there's every reason in the world that this would just happen. You don't need a grant. It doesn't need to be a Bill Gates conspiracy. Yes. Uh, it doesn't need to be any of this stuff. Like th- there is just genuine stupidity and a, a complete ig- uh, uh, ignorance or not, not, it's not even ignorance. It's a, like governments will just straight up ignore the evidence of, Hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't be, uh, uh, ha- you know, maybe we shouldn't be producing so many, uh, or, or, you know, raising so many chickens, or maybe we shouldn't be doing this and that. There's a certain comfort and tolerance of the way things are. Yep. That's, uh, that's a lot too of hard to overcome. Money. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause he gets to one of his solutions at the end and people might think this sounds nuts, but I'm telling you, listen to the whole thing. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm not saying I agree with doing it, but he basically says we need to kill millions of chickens. And again, the guy's not necessarily anti-meat. He's just saying we've got to wipe like duck and chicken out of our diet. Yeah, just don't consume it anymore. He's talking about like the factory farm chickens, right? Right, specifically. Um, And because and if there wasn't factory farming, I mean, the bulk of people would not be getting Tyson or Purdue chicken. No way. It would be a hundred times more expensive than it is now. Now, he, he, he does a good job here because he says... You know, don't, he says, understand, he says, if we did actually go out and kill millions of chickens tomorrow, he's like, before you think that that's some terrible thing, guess what? That actually happens every six weeks. Basically, the entire chicken population in factory farming dies every six weeks. Yeah. You know, is slaughtered and and, and it, that's what ends up in your freezer. And, and so it's not like it's something that wasn't going to happen anyway. <laughs> right. Right. Just enjoy your last meal of chicken and then, you know, it'll be over. Yeah. So, again, I'm not saying that that's the way to go. I'm not saying anything. I'm just telling you what, what this book laid out. And, and it's very interesting. And before you, you know, just like we were talking about with Dark Fleet. Go ahead, check out the references. Do the fucking due diligence, okay? Uh, because I think this guy did, and you know there was a lot of things when he would say something really extreme. I would go to the footnotes, 
you know, and because I have the ebook as well. I'm like, all right, where what is he talking about? And I'll look at it. And I, I mean, I've debated some of what he said in How Not to Die as well, you know. So it's not like it's I'm I'm 100 buying everything that he's selling. But uh, but I really think it's a very helpful read. And for a lot of people who have not done any research into factory farming or in meat production and things like this, uh, I think it's a hell of a primer uh, to to get into. So I I give I'll give the book five stars, and I think it's totally worth reading, whether you agree with it or not. So what do you think about his proposal at the end? Of killing all the chickens? Yeah, and not including it in their diet. I know See, you said that you don't you don't want to say that it's right, but for you personally. See, these are the things I don't say on the air because <laughs> But this is what we all want to know. This is how you lose listeners, you understand. No, I don't care about if I lose listeners. Um you're not prescribing anything to anyone else. Everyone, no, all the listeners I, are safe. I, I never like, <laughs> yeah, the way I think things should be, I never anticipate the world ever being that way, nor would I want it to be. Because if I were, I'd be a tyrant or if I did, I'd be a tyrant. Exactly. And I am not that. No. Um, so, you know, but do, do I think that his solution actually makes sense? Uh, I mean, if we're into root striking, Okay. Let's get this shit out of our, I mean, you know, it, in fact, I mean, there's research to suggest how do we end up with a common cold? It's because we ate fucking horses. All right, well, let's stop doing that. You know, like <laughs> that, that, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, and, and that's not hard, you know. Um, so you're saying that living in close proximity with and consuming animals is how he argues in the book most viruses were transmitted to humans or at least some of the major viruses that we know of today yes yeah part partly it's the production process and 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 so much more uh or the the farming process and everything else that they that they go through now if we were in a world a very different world where everything was more farm to table you know uh which is certainly something that's grown in popularity but that doesn't scale very well that's why you don't have a lot of investors buying into it um, no, it has to be very local. Right, right. Uh, you know, it, that'd be a different story. Like, I mean, I've raised chickens. I know exactly what it's like. I know how beneficial it is to have eggs every fucking morning, you know? I mean, and... And, and, and you paid attention to those chickens, and you probably knew when they were sick. Absolutely, you, yes. You went, if you had killed a chicken for consuming, mm-hmm. which I don't know, did you ever do that? Yes. I've snapped the neck. I've done the whole thing. You like gutted it and everything. Yep. And you were Field very, very careful, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I took that very seriously. Yeah. Uh, well, that's not what happens in factory no. farming. <laughs> no, 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 no. These are people who just want to like spray everything down and hope that that works out all right. And it gets FDA approval or, or EPA approval or whatever. But uh, they're slicing and dicing. They're throwing parts into grinders. Oh, they're turning cows yeah. into cannibals. They're literally <laughs> feeding cows themselves. Like, it, it, oh, yeah. it's, it's fucking it's insane. Bad. You know, and, 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 and even meat eaters, even the carnivore types, right? The people who are into the carnivore diet. I've read their books. They know. They, like, they all talk about a holy shit. I wish it was like New Zealand, you know, where they don't feed them the, you know, where they, they don't feed them the crap. And you get like these really great cuts of meat and everything. And they're just dying. They want like their meat shipped from New Zealand because in New Zealand, it's not all this factory farm horseshit. It's old. It's old school there. Right. So you guys know it, too. I mean, like even meat eaters know this factory farming crap is is horrible, you know. Anyway. That, yeah. And, and like, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm no, not being judgmental. But go ahead. 
most people that I've encountered, and mm-hmm. I, I, I ask them about this, mm-hmm. they they know that it's not entirely healthy or sanitary or whatever, but they don't want to know the specifics. No, like, they eat hot dogs anyway. Yeah, it's it's just they want to be able to eat the hot dogs, but they don't want to know how it's made. Right. Because if they knew, then they would be too grossed out to do it. Yeah, the book lays out a lot of that, too, saying that, like, basically, a lot of these companies thrive off of the fact that people just don't know how it's done. Or they don't they don't want to know because right. it's so tasty. Right. And And I'll tell you. I get fucking annoyed when I hear people like defending McDonald's and, and, and other places. What was that book that came out of a couple, it was like a couple decades ago. Um, whereas it was a book written about McDonald's and the fast food industry overall, but more specifically about McDonald's. Um, and this guy was going down the line of like how McDonald's was formed and the, how the burgers and the French fries are made and, mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll have to look into the title of that, but anyway, it's a famous book. It's been around for a long time. That was one of the books that got me started down this road of like learning about factory farming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I mean, people will basically, they will be supportive of like McDonald's and say, oh, you know, please don't legislate against McDonald's, blah, 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 because, you know, then poor people can't eat or whatever. And it's like, how about you argue for poor people getting access to like much better food? Instead, you know, if you're going to go down that road, if you're going to worry about legislation, how about you, you legislate in favor, like genuinely in favor of the health of the poor people instead of like the more economic concerns and, and, and no, those are not the same, uh, you know, standard of living and quality of life are two very, very different concepts and, and people, people really forget that, but that's, that's really, that's, that's very annoying now. And look, and I'm not, I'm not one of these people who's attacking, you, you know, a quick side note. That really fucking annoyed me. Um, during the speaking of the present climate, during a lot of the protests that have been going on lately, uh, it was revealed that the CEO of Wendy's donated some four hundred million or some stupid amount of money. I don't know what I forget what it was to to Donald uh, Trump. No, I mean, I, look, what? what? Yeah, yeah, and so everybody said cancel Wendy's. And look, I'm an anarchist. Fuck Donald Trump, you know, uh, right in the pooper. I, I, like I, I, I couldn't give I, I don't care about that guy. And I think anybody that supports that guy is a fucking dick. All right. Like a I, tiny I, one. Yep. And yes. A most micro likely. penis. Yep. Probably. Yeah. Bingo. So, <laughs> wow. Uh, all right. <laughs> but. You want some reality, folks, and this this just this is more of the same problem that people don't know how civilization works, right? This goes all the way from not checking references in Dark Fleet to you know not knowing how food gets made or, or produced to this. You're gonna because I saw on Twitter everybody for a good couple of days were like I am never eating at Wendy's again. Ninety percent of Wendy's restaurants. Around the world, well, they're not, uh, often they're not international. Like, I, I think there's very few countries they're actually in, in as far as that goes. But regardless, around the world, just say that for the argument's sake. Our franchisees, they have nothing to do with corporate. They, I mean, you you aren't like, they, they have completely separate CEOs. And the only time that they are in any way beholden to the CEO that donated to Donald Trump 
is, you know, maybe when like uh, uh, they'll have a guy come out that'll walk around with the general manager of a franchise, however many stores that is, two, three, five, however many, you know, stores are in a franchise, and they'll do an inspection and make sure it meets with corporate standards. But they still have to pass money along to corporate, right? They're uh, still feeding that. I suppose they do send, yeah, they pay for the license, you know, to, and, and, and yeah, there, there's some of that. But understand, like those, the franchisees are not that CEO. They are their own separate business people that happen to be buying a name, you know? And so I just, I, I, I thought that was ridiculous. And I, and it seems ridiculous to me that people are stopping eating Wendy's because they donated to Trump and not because of any other health concerns. Yeah. When there's plenty of health concerns, like we're laying out here, (laughs) you know, to, 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 to talk about, uh, as good reasons to stop eating at Wendy's, but whatever you know i mean that's the thing is that that requires actual research you know and and most people aren't willing uh, to go through that okay so uh, i'm done dodging (laughs) your your question (laughs) so how do i feel about eliminating all the chickens or all the factory farm chickens and and ducks uh why basically the question is is like do i have a problem with chicken no longer being a part of like uh, our diet as human beings or ducks being a part of our diet as human beings. Why? I, I, yeah, I have no problem with that, you know? And the solution is, is that just at some point, you know, maybe people rationally choose to stop eating a animal that can transmit a very deadly virus that could wipe out your entire species. Um, just out of pure self-interest, I'm on board with doing that, you know, with not having that be a part of the diet anymore. I mean, fortunately, I'm not, I have no interest before somebody misconstrues what I'm saying. I have no interest in legislation getting passed that says we can't factory farm chickens anymore or anything like that. I I don't want that for for two fucking seconds. Okay. Um, I don't want some like government mandate that says chickens must die. I no interest in that whatsoever. (laughs) Would I mind chickens? Yeah. Everywhere. Right. Would I mind if Chick-fil-A went out of business? No, I wouldn't be too hard up about that. I'm like, okay, you fucking assholes. Good for, you know. Yeah. Goodbye KFC. Yeah. Right. You know, (laughs) So see, see, I'm trying to show that I'm, you know, I'm actually rational about what I'm saying here is that because I'm not defending fast food, but then also, uh, you know, I'm not supportive of the meat. It's interesting that you're naming fast food restaurants and fast food nation was the name of the book I was referencing earlier anyway, but um, by Eric Schlosser, but like fast food is one of the biggest providers of meat to Americans. Right. Um, I mean, like, yes, people do buy it at the grocery store Mm -hmm. to feed their families throughout the week, Mm -hmm. but these fast food restaurants go through meat so quickly. Like they don't even sell all of it at the end of the day. Yeah. But yeah, it's like millions of tons every year. And it, it's just, it's incredible. Um, But I find it interesting that you're naming fast food restaurants and not like grocery store chains or something. I could do that too. I mean, there's, I think it's very, and I've kind of hinted at this on past episodes of Sovereign Tech. And it's something I've been learning about, about a lot recently as well. And this comes from people who are not vegan or vegetarian or anything of the sort. This comes from from other, uh, you know, other experts in different fields. But basically, in the 1970s, the world or America dramatically changed uh, in in many ways, like 
suddenly there was like the marketing machine became a very, I mean, it existed before, but it got perfected. It seems in the seventies and you had an industrial revolution that like everybody, you know, most people recognize that the industrial revolution in, you know, early 20th century, a little before and so on, how much that changed the world. Right. Sure. The jungle was written about it. Yeah. Upton Sinclair. There you go. Um, in the seventies, there was a food industrial revolution just as dramatic, but most people it, like it was, it was almost a shadow. Like you didn't notice the change because it all happened on the ingredients list. And actually at the time it didn't have to be on the ingredients list. Wow. And, and so, I mean, there was a major, major shift that occurred in the seventies with food and a lot of other things. Um, I talked about it in one of my Q and A's recently, but anyway, most people just don't know that, 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 that happened, that the way that we used to eat, what we used to eat, the ingredients, everything completely shifted, you know, and it's not just, well, I mean, cause it happened it affected fast food too. Fast food used to cook all their shit in lard. Right. Uh, and then that changed and it all went to vegetable oil or whatever fucking concoction that they, you know, drained out of car engines um, that they put on the grill. You <laughs> so know, what was the, this change about? Well, a lot of it was about how do we make food last long? I mean, a lot of it was about preserves, you know, like how do we make food or preservatives? How, how do we make food last longer on the shelves? How do we make food easier to cook? How do we do, you know, X, Y, Z, all these things that you know, certainly brought up the level of convenience around a lot of it for not just the, the grocery store that could have, uh, you know, that didn't have to write up so much food cost at the end of the month, but also for the consumer. But the thing is, is that so much of this shit was completely unnatural, didn't go through half the testing that it should have on, on human beings. You know, I mean, this is the whole reason that people are getting so hot about like farm to table and a lot of this other stuff, because finally people are talking about it that, whoa, what we did in the seventies to our food, holy hell. And what we've accepted for, for so many decades. Oh, that's got to stop. You know? Well, I mean, we don't wrap it in asbestos anymore, but well, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's all. So is it so are you saying the food that we eat today is similarly unhealthy to what it evolved into in the 70s? I'm saying that before the like before the 70s, the food that you got in grocery stores and even at what would equate to fast food wasn't as big a thing, obviously, at the time. You know, a lot of this stuff was significantly healthier for you. You mean it was more natural? It was like more. It, it wasn't was, food right, science, right? It wasn't so much food science. There wasn't even so much uh, factory farming and and so on. Um, it, it was just it was it was a very very different uh, situation. Now, some people might want to say when we bring that up that well, you know, as far as slaughtering all the chickens. That didn't stop the Spanish flu, and that wasn't a problem when the Spanish flu happened in nineteen, you know, in the early twentieth century, nineteen eighteen, whatever. Um, the reason the Spanish flu spread was because governments basically downplayed it. They said because they were concerned about the war effort, they didn't want anything to get in the way of fighting World War One, and so they basically lied around the world, every government, to their citizenry, saying, "No, no, Spanish flu, ah, it's just just a cold. It's no big deal." You know, but the people were why the people wisened up like they knew they, they said, no, 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 no. I watched somebody die in 24 hours. Fuck you that that's that's the cold, 
you know. So people weren't taking precautions? Is that what happened? Like, yeah, nobody, businesses weren't, whoever, I mean, because government certainly didn't have, and fortunately it didn't, didn't have the the kind of power that it does today, um, you know, and that's true around the world at that time. Um, yeah, basically people weren't taking precautions because nobody, nobody was warning them. And the government, at least what power did have, was basically telling newspapers, oh, no, no, everything's fine. You know, so the transmission. So the issue there wasn't that we had too many chickens. The issue there was that there wasn't enough information. Yeah. And at that time, the factory farming wasn't even happening, was it? Like chickens were raised. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, that, that wasn't happening. But that's what I'm saying is that like if somebody could have told them to just wash their hands, the Spanish flu wouldn't have been as terrible as it was, you know, uh, but governments at that point. You know, it's almost the opposite situation, right? Because a lot of people get conspiratorial saying, oh, the government's using this to destroy the economy or to do whatever the fuck they, I don't know, whatever people think that the government's doing with this. Um, granted, the U.S. certainly downplayed COVID-19, I think, initially, or at least Donald Trump did. Before uh, it came to the U.S., yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but Once it got here, that was a totally different story. Right. Right. Then everybody's wearing masks. Um, and now who knows what anybody's doing and... Anyway, so, <laughs> but at the time, you know, government, I, I mean, like government's complicit in all of, in pretty much all of those deaths of people with Spanish flu. And that was millions of people um, because government literally, you know, like fed misinformation and downplayed uh, what was going on, saying it wasn't a real threat just so that they could keep the war effort going. And that's crazy. You know, and, and, and a lot of people, you know, we don't know, we didn't know, we don't know all this. And that's, that's part of why I actually, why I think this book, How to Survive a Pandemic is very worthwhile to listen to. It's history of the Spanish flu is phenomenal on its own. And it really is solid because it brings up a lot of information because uh, it talks about actually how they brought the Spanish flu back to study it because nobody really knew where it came from up until the past few years or the past, uh, like, 15 years. So did it come from Spain? No, no. In fact, that, calling it Spanish flu, was to basically make Americans feel better about themselves. Uh, and in varying countries to feel better about themselves. They just blamed it on the country that they could. Um, it, wow. Anyway, anyway. It sounds like there's a lot in this book. So, so you would recommend to read it. Uh, can you tell us, like, what it did suggest as far as surviving a pandemic. Well, let me, let me say quick that. Yeah. All right, fine. We'll go there. That, that's, that's fine. Um, yeah. What, well, hand washing was a huge part of it. And like I said, the, 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 the killing of the, the, the chickens and so on, storing stuff up, like storing up, basically storing up hand washing materials for a good three months. You know, it, it talked about that. Um, it talked about masks, like what are the best masks to wear? It made an interesting case that running to the hills actually won't solve anything um, or, or may not be a solution because of the way, you know, that that it spreads and so on. Um, uh, it was interesting that it said uh, or that that it was recommended don't have long nails. I thought that that was like a finer point, but I like that point. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, everybody's been told to always scrub beneath their fingernails, right? Yeah. What about the people that have really long fingernails? Yeah. I've seen so many girls, because I attend a public university, mm -hmm. that have these long fake nails that, like, I'm pretty sure they're glued on or whatever. Yeah. 
but they, they like they always have them. I don't understand how they button buttons or zip up or like like they're good for picking things, but they're mm-hmm. not good for like what about typing? I, I don't know. I just don't understand <laughs> it. Anyway, they are they are a magnet for dirt and grime and yeah, oils. He specifically calls out fake nails as well. I mean that that that's like that that can be a that can be a very real health concern. Um, I mean, some of the numbers that he lays out in it are crazy where like even doctors that are in the ICU, they don't, they only wash their hands 30% of the time that they're supposed to based on research. I mean, like they're, it, it's, I mean, there, there's a lot they're, they're real. They're actually like, like I said, not, not a whole lot of the book is spent on the actual solution. Like what you can do as an individual, but what's there I think is solid. I didn't hear anything that I was like, well, that's crazy. You know, it was pretty good. So I think you mentioned he like, he will make hand sanitizer out of vodka if he can't find any at the store. Yeah. So, but that's the, the thing with that is, is that vodka or alcohol in general um, may not be strong enough for all uh, of these, you know, H1, or, you know, for all for COVID-19 vodka has a high enough alcohol content that right. it would kill it. The alcohol content has to be at least seven or 60%. 60%. Yeah. Uh, 70% is the most effective because right. it, it's very potent in alcohol, but it doesn't evaporate away as quickly as like a 80 or 90% solution. Yeah. So that's the ideal point. 70. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you can't find hand sanitizer, yeah, go to the liquor store, you know? Um, I mean, that's kind of his recommendation, which I thought was, was interesting, but you know, he makes it very clear that this will work on COVID-19, but it, there's other things that it wouldn't end up working on. Oh, you're talking about the 30% solution. Yeah. 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 So anyway, it's not antibacterial. Right. At that level. Right. But it works, you know, it works. So anyway, it's, it's a great book. Uh, whether, you know, you want to buy into everything, you know, his solutions and all that, I, I, I still think it was a really, really solid read and a lot of interesting stuff. It's, I mean, a lot of it about the Spanish flu, I thought was really, really fascinating, um, to, to, to get into, especially, you know, people say like, Oh, I never even heard of the Spanish flu. Like my grandmother never talked about the Spanish flu. She was alive during then. Why didn't she talk about it? And he basically says like that it was such, and I think this speaks to a lot of what might be going on today or it's part of it is that it was so traumatic for the world that they, you basically had like collective amnesia. They, they just like a traumatic response where they just pretend it didn't happen. You know, they pretended it didn't happen. You think it was so terrifying that people just didn't want to relive that experience they because just, it was something that could have potentially wiped out humanity. Yeah. Right. And so, and they just saw so many people die. I mean, the mass graves, everything about it was just horrible. They, they just basically pretended it didn't happen and moved on. And I wonder how much a lot of that is going to speak to today, years from now. Well, there are certain things that have happened throughout history that are incredibly traumatic. Mm -hmm. Um, Just one thing that comes to mind is the Holocaust, for example, Mm -hmm. um, which that, one could argue was even more of a, a trauma. Well, we set up memorials for that. I mean, like that. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing is that people want to remember that. They actively seek out and learn about it. And they're trying to, like, educate the public about that sort of occurrence. But it's certainly not the only, um, like, government-perpetrated mass murder of a particular group of people. 
Sure. Well, you raise, actually, you raise a great point with that because, you know, there's a lot of people who want to deny that the Holocaust ever happened. Yeah. And Um, they're crazy. (laughs) Well, I, I agree, you know, and I'm not just saying that because I'm a Jew. Like, I mean, that it's, it's really. There's irrefutable evidence that it happened. Right. But I suppose they would find reasons to refute it. Yeah. So, but that's the thing is that I think, I think this, and I know I'm not the first person to say this, but people have a natural, in fact, Arthur Miller originally said something to this effect. People really have a a natural uh, sense or feeling that society has to make sense. Like that there's got to be a reason and that something so terrible can't just happen. Like we can't, that, that I think so many people just cannot accept that something so dark, something so terrible, be it Spanish flu, Hitler, maybe COVID-19, maybe system, you know, systemic racism, maybe all, you know, all kinds of things. Maybe this is why a lot of people can't see government as the fucking bad guy that it is because they just, their brains just won't let them process the possibility that something that terrible is going on. They just, it it won't allow it to happen. And we're seeing it happen. I mean, you have Holocaust deniers, you have an entire generation that wouldn't even write it in their diaries about Spanish flu. You know, I mean, like, why did they bring Spanish flu back? Because nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody, not even the scientists at the time. I mean, they didn't have the tools to study it anyway. But the scientists at the time wouldn't even want to write down about it. Like, it's a miracle we even have evidence of it. And that's interesting you say that. Um, I wonder if the reason that nobody wanted to talk about it and maybe what made the trauma that much deeper was the fact that the government was lying about it and suppressing information and trying to limit the spread of information about the Spanish flu because people were getting the message not to talk about it. And maybe for the people who did experience it first or secondhand, um, you know, they were seeing something so horrible and then being told this doesn't exist. It's not a problem. There would be precedent for that. And the precedent I think would actually be the league of nations, because if you were, I mean, basically like how does the, how does a person then, you know, how would they necessarily resolve like, okay, how do we keep from this, from this ever happening again, this pandemic, how do we keep this from ever spreading from country to country? Well, we, we don't do globalism anymore. Right. I'm sure that's what a lot of them might've thought, you know, maybe you, you enact an isolationist policy of some kind. Well, that wouldn't fly with what the U S government at the time and governments, other governments in the world were trying to do with the league of nations. So to suppress the danger of, you know, some kind of like global unity. Yeah. I think they, there's at least that reason for them to do for governments to do so at the time. That makes sense. That's a very interesting point you bring up. Yeah. I just, I think that there's some sort of psychological effect on people. Um, not just that the illness was terrible, which I imagine it, it was if people were dying within 24 hours of showing symptoms, but also that the government, the governing body of the time was telling them to not talk about it. Um, like that, I, I think that would cause a lot more damage than just the illness itself because, mm-hmm. um, people are being told essentially to repress these experiences, or at least they're being told that they're not important or relevant or true. Um, 
And yeah. if they suspect that it is the Spanish flu that's causing all these deaths, they're being told by some organization that they're supposed to trust that it's not so. Right. And that's got to be like incredibly confusing and frustrating for people of the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, something else that, that gets brought up in the book quite a bit that, that applies to this is he keeps trying to hammer home the point. There is almost no cases of the 24 hour flu, meaning that there's this idea. And I know I've been told it since I was a kid, you know, that there's this thing called the 24 hour flu where like you throw up for 24 hours and then suddenly you're fine. No, it's food poisoning. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's not, there's, there is no 24 hour flu. I mean, maybe in some rare case or something, but it's incredibly rare. And, but so many people, you, you, we could go, we could walk outside and talk to people. And I bet they'd say they got the 24 hour flu, but it's not, it's food poisoning, but it's not just necessarily food poisoning because of, you know, bad preparation of food as in at, in your kitchen, but bad preparation at the factory, (laughs) you know, like, I mean, and, and, and again, this thing, and that's almost a, that becomes sort of what you're talking about, where it is a cultural lie. That yes. that there's this idea of the 24 hour flu when no, 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 no. There's something very wrong with our food. It's not, it's not, that it's not a flu. So yeah, you're right. People are using the colloquialism to kind of protect themselves from the real truth of what's going on. Yeah. Because you don't want to think that you ate something bad. You don't want to think that when you went to uh, uh Louis, you know, uh, in Indiana or something that, uh, that, that Louis restaurant somehow gave you bad frog legs. You don't want to think of it, you know, whatever the fuck it was, you know, <laughs> like you just, these are things you don't want to, you don't want it to be that because God damn it, you met a hot gal at Louis last night, you know? And, and so, I mean, there's While a lot you were of eating frog legs, huh? <laughs> All right. That's so maybe it. that's unbelievable, but, <laughs> but I love the story. Yeah. But, but you get my point is that, is that, you know, there's a lot of very simple, re- it doesn't have to be malicious. It's just quite simply humans just don't want to accept it. They don't, there's, there's things that there's things they want to hold on to. There are, there are distances that they don't want to go be it laziness, lack of courage, or, you know, just a, a, a lackadaisical, you know, just a, just this laissez-faire. I, I don't know. But, yeah, I think that's there. I think that is a huge thing that does not get talked about enough, especially right now. Well, if I can spread some information Please. right now about germs. You're good at it. <laughs> good at spreading germs or information? Actually, both, but <laughs> we'll spread some germs uh, later. <laughs> we'll swap some. Anyway, sorry, go. So I know that some people listening to this are probably still meat eaters, no matter what we say. And that's yeah, totally fine. Yep. And we accept that. Um, so meat naturally is sanitary. It's only when it's chopped up that it is exposed to viruses and bacteria, which all exist on the surface of the meat. Um, And the longer the meat sits out, the more they will reproduce. Mm -hmm. I mean, viruses probably won't, but the bacteria will. Uh, And those are usually things that give you food poisoning. There's an excess amount of bacteria. Right. Um, So just make sure that you're cooking your meat completely thoroughly and that every surface that is touched by the meat and that you touch while you're preparing are sanitized. Yes. Yeah. So, and that's all you have to do to protect yourself from this sort of uh, illness. Yeah. So, I mean, great reason to have the vodka around. 
you know, to, yeah. <laughs> it's like, just like develop an awareness that like everything you touch has millions of little things crawling on it. Just like visualize that. I, I could see it becoming like a new superstition, kind of like how you, you know, you toss salt behind your back. Right. But in this case, you know, all right, sp- spill a little vodka on the table, you know, after, <laughs> after you down some and then, uh, and, and then rub it in on, on the counter. You're not just pouring one out for your homies. You're <laughs> doing it for all the bacteria too. <laughs> This could become a thing, or or maybe do it with tequila. There we go. The the rock can think. Well, later. the thing go is, ahead. you don't you don't have to live a hyper sanitary life. It's just when it comes to meat specifically, because that's where all the dangerous bacteria exist. Well, this is part of the reason that that I decided to become you know uh, uh, vegan more uh, was like okay, so so I don't have to worry if I accidentally leave the food out so much, you yes. know, <laughs> and it'll be all right. Uh, because I mean, because that's the thing. Like I, I get it. I don't want, there's things I don't want to think about. There's things I don't want to worry about, you know? Sure. And, and, and I want it to be simple, you know, uh, because I've got other shit to do, you know? And so I, anyway, great, great, uh, great recommendations. Of course. I'm j- I just care about people. And yes. want them to be healthy. You most certainly do. Goddess of love. Yes, you do. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, anyway, well, so the, I, I think this is wildly valuable. Uh, I'm probably going to title the episode Sovereign Tech Book Club. Oh, wow. <laughs> because because I, I think there's a lot of great info laid out here, even though we're just reviewing books. Uh, boy, maybe we should do this more often. This but. was just supposed to be a brief introductory segment, people. I, I know. It's just going on for over an hour now. We're, right. We're at an hour 15 now. What What the hell? Anyway, no. We just have too much fun. We love books. We love talking to each other. We do love books. Heck, we love each other. Yes. That, oh, <laughs> man. I mean, you know, and, but that's that's such that's another solution. Okay, is we? It's one of the things you and I have is an environment where, like, I'm reading this crazy ass book, and I don't mean how to survive a pandemic. I mean, Dark Fleet, you know. But I know I can bring it up to you, and I don't have to worry about you in the back of your mind thinking, "Oh my God, Brian's finally snapped. He's <laughs> he's 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 gone. He's." You know? Like, I don't have to worry about it. I can just tell you, you know, straight face and, 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 and then, and, and we move on, we discuss it and, you know, that we have a judgment or, or we have a judgment free zone, you know, it's kind of like planet fitness, right? We have, yeah, we don't, we don't judge each other. You know, we, we, we take the time to listen. We try to understand. And we also give each other, I think very much the benefit of the doubt, you know, that, okay, no, they're, they're, they're smart. Well, I really listen to you and right. I know over time, I learned what you actually, truly in your core believe. And when you read books like this, I understand it's not that you are looking for more evidence to confirm something that you believe or want to believe. Mm-hmm. It's just to know what's out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, yeah. I mean, it really is something I almost do for kicks with some of this stuff. But yeah, but that's it is that I, I think if more people just had a, not just a person, but an environment where they they can go to the crazy places temporarily, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I totally accept that you want to explore these topics. Right, right. And, and, I mean, and vice versa. Not that I've, I don't, I don't, I can't really think of anything you've presented to me where I'm like, wow, Ellen's really, uh, like we might not, might need to reel in here. The deep end is is getting awfully deep. <laughs> 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 but, 
But I've been practicing my ESP. I'll like reach out my hand and, <laughs> and try to like pull something to me from across the room, but so far no success. Yeah, but this is a problem throughout the, the entirety of society is that we we don't have enough places where not necessarily where we have free speech, you know, or free speech or whatever. Okay. But places where we can discuss things without judgment, you know, or judgment can be reserved for a little while and then we can hammer it out and discuss it. You know, I mean, that just doesn't exist for, for most people. And, and you can't get to, in my opinion, you can't get to new ideas. Uh, I mean, and, and every, every industry, Scientists, all of them, everybody's always talking about, yeah, we're looking for new ideas. Well, you can't get there if you're just going to constantly tell people, well, that's fucking crazy. Yeah. No, I, I never say that to you. I mean, like, I will say it jokingly. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't ever call you crazy. I don't think you're crazy for reading these books. I think it's exciting. Right. That you are thinking so far outside of the box. Yeah. Um, And I, I love it. I love that you're so creative. Well, that goes both ways. So anyway. That, that that's certainly a solution to a lot of this uh, is, you know, just have a place where we can actually discuss this kind of stuff. Of course, maybe that's what Sovereign Tech provides for a lot of people as well, even though I did call the author crazy, but just he is. And <laughs> <laughs> the evidence is found wanting. Um, but if he were here and we were talking to him, you would not be judgmental at all. Because Not at first. A, no, I listen to him. That's the kind of person him. you are. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I am that. I, I am a very open-minded guy. Uh, that, thank you. <laughs> if I don't say so myself, I got you to say it anyway. Uh, yeah, do, well, I experience that every day. Yeah. And I'm so appreciative of it. Well, likewise, because you also, you know, listen to people. And, I, and I've seen you, like, at, even at events and other things, where someone is telling you the most batshit insane thing. And you're just listening. You're like, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you and you run with it. Well, you have to let people speak their truth. Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't have to buy it, but, you no, know, right. just accept that what they are saying they believe is true. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So anyway, you know, should we get into some stories or something? I mean, we got a little bit of time left. We got to, I don't know. <laughs> we should probably try to touch on one at least. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we should get to one. Um you know, one of these, I'm uh, I'm not going to, this had to do with Apple Music. I'm not going to go there right now. We can skip that uh, or I'll save it for the, the the next episode. You know, actually, let's let's take a quick break and then we'll come back. Got an interesting story that's going to play off of the last episode that I think is worth talking about. We'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech. Woo! Hey, is Sovereign Tech not enough for you? Well, let me tell you about something you'll never get enough of. No, no, I mean it. We're talking about a radio show and podcast that goes all night long, seven nights a week, three hours a night, 365 days a year, and has been going since the early aughts, baby. I am talking about none other than Free Talk Live. It's the show you control. That's right. It's an open phones call-in show that is ready for you. And if you're worried that your voice isn't going to get heard, don't be. We are talking about the only libertarian radio show stateside, and not only that, it's also the number 26 talk show in the United States. Start listening now and go ahead and hit that massive back catalog at freetalklive.com. The Golden Stallion guarantees a good time, and you might even find some episodes with me on them when you do. That's freetalklive.com, and we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Let's get back to the show. 
the main story. So, I mean, we could call this the story of the week, but <laughs> this has been such a, or the main story. This has been such a wild uh, episode. I think. I've totally derailed the show. I love it. You do that whenever <laughs> you want. That's when the best stuff comes out all the time. Um, last last episode, episode 377, I talked about, I got into a bit of a screed. I derailed my own damn show, frankly. Which <laughs> you do a lot. Yeah, I do. Uh, and I ended up talking about, um, I ended up talking about, doing less, you know, that we're constantly bombarded uh, and constantly told, frankly, to just like keep doing more, doing more, try and multitask more, fit more in, or, you know, you might be historically uh, into so many things, you know, but then whatever's going on, um, you know, you end up working a lot more hours or things to, you know, change in your life. There might be some kind of dramatic change. And then you just, you know, you can't do all these things that you used to do anymore. You know, this, this sort of stuff happens. And I was basically suggesting that, you know, to get, I mean, and, and this plays off of much of what we were talking about earlier, you know, to, to even begin to try to explore the reality of any situation, scenario or subject or whatever, you got to have focus, you know, but if you're, thoughts are in a million places at once. I mean, it's just, it's not going to happen. And so that's sort of what I meant by doing less that, and, and I actually saw an interesting story that's fairly recent. Um, it's in the Harvard business review, which was, if you want to be more productive, try doing less, which I think actually drives the point home. I mean, when you hear me say that, Ellen, I mean, what 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 instantly comes to your mind? The idea of to maybe be more productive or to focus, do less. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with that sentiment. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that I've been ramping up on and developing in my own life over the last few years. Uh, I think a lot of people have gotten the message on social media uh, that, and like other websites, maybe not Harvard Business Review, but certainly other business related websites that to be an ultra productive person mm -hmm. to achieve and be everything that you want in this crazy modern world, you have to be multitasking or you have to be in this hyper productive, stressed out state all the time where you're doing you have everything planned out and you're doing multiple things at once. You've got like things going on in the background and. Uh, you've got things lined up that you're going to try next and or a million notifications timed out. Yeah, that yeah. too. I mean, even if you're not trying to be hyper productive, if you're just trying to be an average productive person, um, yeah, uh, people are inundated with, with, you know, cell phone signals all the time. Like you're getting messages from four different apps, five different apps. Yeah. Um, I've even run into that problem where like, you know, some people use, Telegram, some people use Signal, some people use Message Plus, some people use GroupMe. Right. Like, you know, you got to check all of these different messaging apps just to, like, get a full picture of what's going on in your world. Um, and that is, uh, that in itself is time consuming, um, which I, I don't think a lot of people realize is, like, when you, 
you try to multitask, which you can't actually do unless mm-hmm. you're like me and you pet your cat while you're brushing your teeth. But that's <laughs> simple muscle memory, you know? You don't right. have to think about that when you just let your body do the motions. But uh, for a lot of other things that take mental attention, you cannot multitask. You actually just shift from one task to another. And that process of changing speed and direction takes time in itself. You know, you raise a great point, too, with the different messaging apps, Uh, because no one I, I don't think we're ever going to as much as I might want us to or, you know, as much as I might want all of my interactions to be in one app. I don't think we're ever there's never going to be and really maybe nor should there be one app to rule them all. Right. One one messaging app, you know, for for everything, because that creates a central point of failure. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, because each one of these apps is different. They're. I feel like you 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 have a you engage each of these apps and platforms with a different personality. Yeah, like like because they have a different personality, as it were, like they have a different UI. Right. Um, and so you you engage with them like it's not just a matter of, you know, OK, I got to check this app. You have to come at it with a very different uh, attitude. I think that might be the better word, a different attitude. And even that just draws away more focus because it's just draining more of your mental bandwidth, you know, Um so I, I, f- I feel like there's there's a l- there's a little bit of an issue there as well that might be somewhat unconscious. But anyway, that's not necessarily where this I think it's a great point to bring up. Um, why don't we read a bit of this article here? OK, yeah, um, I'm really excited to get into this because I, I do agree that simplifying and doing less is actually the greatest way to achieve more. Yeah, sure. Right, right. So anyway, here it's from, uh, and, and this gal actually has like a whole book on this. I think her name is uh, Kate Northrup. Uh, we've, we've been taught that if we want more, uh, if we want more money, achievement, vitality, joy, peace of mind, we need to do more to add more to our ever growing to do list. But what if we've been taught wrong? What if the answer to getting more of what we want isn't addition at all, but subtraction? As it turns out, evidence supports that if we want to ramp up our productivity and happiness, we should actually be doing less. Uh, David Rock, author of Your Brain at Work, found that we're truly focused on our work a mere six hours per week, which starkly contrasts our collective buy into the 40 hour work. Woo, what are these people doing for work? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. How do you feel about that? Are people really getting paid to sit at desks and do hardly anything? Because that's like when when I was an intern and Mm -hmm. I I would get a thrill out of working 10 hour days, like give me overtime, please. I wanted to be at work. I was so excited about what I was doing. Right. I couldn't imagine like only six hours a week of pure attention on what you're doing. That sounds like they're not actually enjoying what they do. Yeah. Well, the. Yeah, actually, you're, I think you're hitting at a big point there. But then I don't think most people do. I, you know, I don't think most people really enjoy like the, their their work life. You know, most people are doing it to get a paycheck to what? Go and do other things. I mean, even I fall into that from time to time. Uh, so, you know, that that's you raise a great point, though. If sure. you're only focused like six hours. Um, I mean, there have been movements. There have been various movements where. 
uh, like work movements. And I don't mean like workers, socialist republic movements or anything like that. I mean, like actually people who are, or companies that are saying, yeah, you know, we only get like a good three, four hours out of a person per day. Why don't we switch to, uh, you know, having them only work three hours a day, you, you know, but it's still like, they still get paid well though. That's kind of the, that's not every job is still going to pay you well for doing three hours a day. Right. Sure. It's because it's that high profile of a job or that mission critical or whatever, or you have where people are doing like four, 10 hour days a week instead of that's still the 40 hour work week, but doing that instead of, um, you know, having five days where it's eight hours a week. I mean, actually, let me ask you on this. I, I don't know about you, but like with the weekend, like Sunday is when I'm just finally feeling like I'm relaxing Yeah, a lot of times. And so I really wish, like, I, I think if we had three-day weekends, that would be far, far better. So one uh, possible work schedule setup that I've heard of mm-hmm. from a local manufacturing facility, um, they actually do these shift rotations where they'll have a person work three days out of the week. And then the next week, they'll work four days. Ah. And they keep shifting between three and four day weeks. Right. But their shifts are 10 hours. Right. Okay. So that does give you like a three to four day weekend, depending on which week it is. But you still have to be at work for 10 hours. I would totally choose that. I mean, if I could have more days, I don't know. I still, I feel like I work 10 hours a day anyway, oftentimes. I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, but, or what's more. an additional two hours? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's mm. but uh, I would love to have like just those longer time spans of time off and have the longer days of working if that were the choice. I mean, really, and we've actually you and I on Sovereign Tech have had conversations about work in the past and kind of like the issues with a lot of that. But yeah. what what's happening is isn't working right now. And part of it, I think, comes down to. Part of the reason I think that that people are so hungry for like, for example, taking four 10 hour days instead of five, eight hour days is that, I mean, there is so much to do now, you know, like there's so much fun stuff to do now. Granted, maybe not so much during, you know, lockdowns and quarantines and everything, but, um, but I mean, in general, in the modern world, like there's just so much to do. Yeah. The possibilities are endless. Right. Right. Which might not have exactly always been the case, or at least it wasn't as uh, enticing anyway back in the day. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I I think the situations are very different. Like back in the day, I don't know when you're talking about, but like Mm -hmm. I think people's livelihoods were essentially their life. You know, like if you worked at the shoe shop, that you were probably like the owner or a family member of the owner. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you lived right above it. So that was your whole world, you know? Right. Like right. you were, you were really invested in doing what you were doing because that was like the only real option you had if you wanted to stay with your family and, yeah. and make enough to live. Um, but I don't know. I, I think people have always had personal lives, Oh, yes. Things that they're interested in outside of work. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just saying now, like, I mean, there's more, you know, even if it's just the simple things or what could be, they're not simple. Uh, There's more TV to watch. There's more movies to see. There's more 
Uh, there's more games to play. There's yeah. more, you know, I mean, there's just so many options. It's, it's, it's really a thing. But and that's kind of also what I was hitting at in the last episode about doing less, you know, uh, and I, I hate to ever say to anybody. I mean, I'm a hedonist. I hate saying you have to give something up, but I maybe mean, there, consuming less entertainment is good for your attention span. Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, anyway, let, let, let's keep going with the article here to, to discuss some of this. Um, as it turns out, reading out of the article, evidence supports that if we want to ramp up our productivity and happiness, we should or oh, I already read that part. Um, yeah, yeah, okay, here we go. When you stop uh, when you stop doing the things that make you feel busy but aren't getting you results and are draining you of energy, then you end up with more than enough time for what matters and a sense of peace and spaciousness that constant activity has kept outside your reach. As people with full lives, kids, careers, uh, friends, passions, logistics, and more, how can we apply the wisdom of doing less to give ourselves more time and alleviate stress without jeopardizing our results? We need to identify what not to do. Can, this- wait, can we pause just for a second? Yeah, sure. I think this is a huge point. Um, and it's such a short paragraph here, but I, it's incredibly important, I think, to pay attention to things that you do throughout the day that you're doing because you feel the anxiousness of needing to do something. Mm-hmm. But it's literally a waste of time because you're not achieving anything. Right. I think people do this all the time. They're feeling like I need to act. I need to do something. Yeah. But they're just like shuffling things around. And it, it like in these moments, you just need to pause and reflect. Like, why am I doing this? This yeah. is wasting my time. I need to get focused again. Yeah. yeah. I catch myself doing that all the time. I'll be like walking around looking at my plants. And next thing I know, I'm like, wait, I've already done this three times. <laughs> I'm yeah. not I'm not, you know, getting any new information here. No, you're right. I mean, and, and I've, I've, and, I, and I've run into the same, you know, and there's times where like something seems so insurmountable, you don't even know where to start or you don't even want to start. Oh yeah. You know? That's a different situation. Yeah. But yeah, yeah that's that is really too. difficult. Um, I mean, something to consider and I've recommended because people have asked me like actually about the very thing you just laid out and, and something I, I've said to people is, and I do this, I try to, to follow my own advice. Just do something like, okay, if you can't do that, you know, if there's something that you are willing to do that still is beneficial to you, you know, and is still in some way rewarding to you, it's getting something done or whatever, go ahead and just go do that. I mean, I, I, there's been, I'll tell you, there's been times where I knew there was work. I had like something I had to get done and I just, I just did not have the, whatever the energy or I just wasn't prepared to make it happen. I just you didn't wasn't, have the cojones. Yeah. I didn't have the cojones. <laughs> yeah. And I just like, I just wasn't there. Like I was not mentally prepared to do that. And quite frankly, you know what I would do? And and it's not like, it's just something that I, I like wantonly do. It's something that I've want, not wantonly, but it's something that I've wanted to do that I, that is important to me. And that gives me, helps give me like mental space. And this is going to sound stupid, but really, um, I will, uh, you know, like organize my Blu-rays or like reorganize like some some Blu-rays or something, you know, that I've needed to do. And like, yeah, that's that could be seen as a pointless, you know, to most people like that could be seen as something pointless. But it's actually something that I've really wanted to do. And I'm just giving the very smallest example and trying to come up with the most pointless example. But it's something that I really wanted to get done. It, you know, it was important to but me. But it's a long project and it's tedious. Like there's no joy in it, but you just want to have it done. Yeah, but I had the energy to do that, right? And even though it wasn't related to work, I went ahead and just did that. 
even though I didn't have the, you know, again, the, 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 yeah, the cojones or the moxie to get started on what maybe what I needed to do, I still got something done. And at least that was done. And interestingly enough, even getting like the little things done can give you a little extra courage to do the big thing. Yeah. Once you you get that feeling of accomplishment from doing a little thing, that kind of takes away from the challenge of just beginning the bigger project. And that's really the hardest part of most of these is just getting it started because there's like mental gear grinding of like, I don't want to do this. Yep. Always. I mean, even like, you know, when I have to go somewhere to work, I mean, always the hardest part was like wanting to go out the door. You know, once you're at work, it's like, okay, I got it, you know, but I mean, but, but getting there, like, that's the part you just don't want to do it. You don't want to do it today, you know, but anyway, um, yeah, you're right. That that's a very important paragraph and, and a good point to bring up. Yeah. Just like, if you catch yourself wasting time as, as in maybe like you're delaying or stalling mm-hmm. on starting something bigger, um, just redirect yourself to something that is productive. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So we'll keep going with it. Sure. Um, We need to identify what not to do, but this determination can't be random. It must be methodical and evidence-based. Through my work with women navigating the dual vocations of entrepreneurship and motherhood, I've created a surprisingly simple exercise to help individuals decide what activities on their to-do list bring them the most value and which they can stop doing. Here's how it works. So now there, what is this? uh, Six, six steps. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I guess we could read through them quick. Yeah, the last couple are kind of the same as a few earlier ones. Right, right. So we'll, we'll go with it. So step one, draw a line down the middle of a piece of paper lengthwise. Step two, decide on an area of your life or work where you'd like to have better results and less stress. For example, perhaps you want to expand your thought leadership. Step three, on the left-hand side, list the tasks or activities you do in that area of your work or life. As an aspiring thought leader, uh, you might list attending conferences, pitching organizations for speaking opportunities, writing new articles, reading and researching, and so on. Step four, on the right-hand side, make a list of your biggest wins in that area, like a speaking gig, a presentation you really nailed at work, or a pitch that was accepted at a major publication. This can often be a difficult step for some people. We have not been culturally conditioned to celebrate ourselves so often. Uh, So often, folks will draw a blank when listing their wins. Any result you've gotten, either one time or repeatedly, that was positive can go on this list. Don't get caught up in listing the right things. Just list what comes to you. Um, and I, I would add on to that, even small wins, like you, you can put down and that kind of speaks to sort of what I was saying, or even getting something done, even if it's not exactly what you should have done is something that, you know, that could help. That could be a decider in this. Yeah, totally. You know? Yeah. Uh, step five, draw a line connecting each of your biggest wins to the activity or task that was most responsible for that result. Reading and researching, for instance, were essential to getting your pitch accepted for publication. So connect these two together. Uh, Step six, circle all the activities and tasks on the left side of your paper that have been responsible for your big wins. Look at what's left. Whatever is encircled is something you need to either stop doing completely, significantly minimize, or delegate it or delegate if it absolutely must be done. For instance, if you discover that traveling for conferences once a month isn't directly contributing to any wins, it's time to set that aside or at least cut back. 
So she goes on, um, this same approach can be used to determine where to do less in other areas of your life. For instance, if you're looking to connect more with your children, you might list a few specific memories or wins when you really felt like you were being the best parent you could, such as singing silly songs with your preschooler while folding the laundry on a Sunday morning, or when you, uh, your preteen bared their soul to you and you felt so honored by how safe they felt to tell you the hard stuff. Um, now think about the tasks you do on a regular basis, laundry, making lunch, reminding your kids to do their schoolwork, checking off uh, committee items for the PTA, making sure everyone's clothes fit and scheduling pediatrician appointments. While these tasks might uh, may need to be done, this exercise can give us permission to spend less time on these activities. Often the things we think we must do are simply because we always have done them or others around us do them and we think we should too. Such a perspective creates unnecessary stress when we do these tasks late, make errors, or ask for help. Uh, and basically, she says, you know, repeat this exercise for as many areas as you think is, you know, helpful and necessary. And it kind of goes on with that. Uh, and I'll just read the last paragraph. Life is about is not about racking up a list of accomplishments, which is ironically what you're doing here. But. She's right. Uh, what you can stop doing to make time, more time for yourself, make more time for joy and use your time more meaningfully. The next time you set a goal or decide you want to improve upon an area of your life or simply alleviate some of the pain that area is causing you, remember to go for, subtra for subtraction instead of addition. Revel in the joy of doing less. So there you have it. Doing less, figuring out what's, and it's based, that's really all she's suggesting is figuring out like what's working for you and what isn't? I mean, it kind of sounds like Marie. Is it Marie Kondo, or who, who, whoever that is? That like, what brings you joy? You know, and like, it's a minimalist approach to doing things in life, like or, or to tasks, to what you need to get done. It's a kind of taking minimalism and pointing it at that. Sort I mean, of. I feel like this is kind of a practice of pruning, where like, if you don't prune the bush, it's going to grow out of control. Yep. Yep. Because uh, as you go about your daily life, especially if you're a productive person with a lot of energy, a real mm -hmm. go-getter, you know, um, like some of these entrepreneurial mothers, uh, you'll probably end up finding things throughout your life that you feel that you could do to improve your life and those around you and, you know, like achieve something that you want to get done. Right. So you just keep adding more responsibilities to your life. Um, and that can be a real challenge, uh, especially if you don't have somebody around that you can delegate to, um, which is why I'm, I'm so glad that you're so helpful to me because I know that I can ask you for help and it doesn't cause me extra stress, right. which is what this article was saying is like, for some people it does cause them stress to ask for help because they feel personally responsible for getting all of this stuff done. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that goes vice versa uh, as well. I mean, it's great to have like an actual helpful partner <laughs> in life yeah, exactly. with a lot of these things. That's for sure. And if you can like delegate tasks, you're not delegate, but like, uh, um, you know, you could take on something. I take on something yeah. and, 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 and it works out for both of us. And it seems like these practices she's outlining, were kind of just like trimming back on some of those responsibilities. If they're not giving you the results you want, forget about it. You don't have yeah. to do it. Yeah. You know, it, I want to add on to this because I think for a lot of us, our tasks are wrapped up. This is where a tech angle comes in. Our tasks are wrapped up in a browser tab. And I don't mean that it's a to-do list in a browser tab. I mean that you have a million browser tabs open 
that requires some kind of action on your, or that you think requires some kind of action on your part, whether it's something you need to download, whether it's something um, that you want to read or it's an email or whatever the fuck it is. Um, Something that I, I find really helpful. It's not drawing a circle or anything like that and seeing which is like actually helpful or something like that is and I hate the fact that a lot of browsers are trying to backpedal on this and they have been for years, bookmark folders mm-hmm. and just bookmark shit. Okay. Or close all of your tabs. And if it's really that important, you will reopen it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you could do that too. Yes. But I think bookmarking it and then, then you can close it. And like, you could make one that says like Saturday reading list. Right. And you could just whatever you want to read, like you set, you have a set time where you're going to read those stories maybe that you saved and you put them into that folder. Now, the irony is you'll probably never touch that folder ever for the rest of your life. You're never going to touch it. It's going to keep adding in stories, <laughs> but you're never going to read. Well, them. unless you really plan to make time to read them like you planned to make that bookmark folder. Right, right. And it was just a tiny bit of extra effort that you put in. To create that organization so that you could save yourself from the stress and anxiety of all that chaos. Yeah. But you could probably, like, increase your feeling of uh, achievement if you actually did start reading some of those things. True, true. But I I think, too, I mean, like, I I just, I don't know. And actually, I'm pretty sure you feel the same way. But, like, the more tabs I see open, I mean, that gives me a sense of nervousness. And, like, that just adds on to, oh, I feel like I need to do more. Agreed. Yeah, right. And so I think ways of eliminating eliminating that is very helpful. But I think also like engaging the practice that Kate here lays out in, in HBR, um, link is in the show notes for people if they want to try it out. Even just seeing everything you do can be really helpful. Like, I mean, it, it's almost like a browser tab of like seeing all these different tabs of what you do. And then you go, holy shit. Like if you ever feel bad about yourself, like, you know, take a look at that. Like, wow, I did a lot, you know, today or something like that. Um, and it's granted, it takes time to do this, you know, practice and all that, but then also it does really, it does help you eliminate a lot of processes. It helps you eliminate a lot of things that you just, you know, maybe once you finally realize, wow, that didn't help with anything. You just don't do it anymore, you know, but we're so go, go, go that we don't even pay attention to the fact we don't even realize that something we spent three hours on yesterday wasn't helpful at all. We're just so used to doing it that we just don't, we don't pay any attention to it. Yeah. It's so crazy. People are in such a rush that they don't even pay attention to what is helping them and what isn't as long as they're just doing something. Right. And it's not until you label it, you know, write it down and see what it is and how it affects you that, you know, and I think that's just as true for like with the browser tabs and creating bookmark folders, because it gets to the point, you don't even know what the browser tab is, you know, unless you recognize what the little icon is maybe because like, there's no room for any text on it for fuck's sake. Oh, and the worst (laughs) part is when you like have tabs open that are, you go back to click on them and you've been logged out of some profile and you have to like re-log back in just to see what it is. That's so annoying. Just get rid of it. Just close it. Yeah, yeah, come back to yeah. it later when you're ready. Yeah, or or bookmark it and close it. But I mean, bottom line being, once it's labeled, even in with the bookmark folder, I think that also is another way of sort of you know, it's it's that labeling like you're doing in the circles of what actually works and what doesn't. Yeah, or don't what's leave important this stuff as like random chaos. Yeah, it needs to go in categories. Exactly, exactly. So exactly. that way you know what you're facing. 
Yeah. And you know, something she says in this article that I absolutely agree with, be ruthless. Like when you make <laughs> these lists, you chop them down. Yeah. <laughs> like you have to really get to the core of what you want to do, uh, what's meaningful to you and what helps you achieve those things. And if you really want to be happy, just do those. Don't do any of the other useless stuff. Like, I, I know you've even had this problem recently. Mm. You've to talked to me about it where um, you feel that there are so many things that you want to do. There's just so much that you want to read. You don't have time for all of yeah. it. And, like, I've had to come to this hard realization that if I want to make it through college, I have to give up literally everything besides being a college student. Right. And that was really hard for me. But yes. now I understand the process. Like... I can't do art. I can't do writing. I have to just focus on doing schoolwork. And that's what I, I have to sacrifice those other things if I want to achieve in this area in my life. And I know it's temporary. And I, I think I can handle the burden of giving up that stuff for now so that I can achieve those things. And like, I'm trying to explain this to you, but you just have like, you have so many other projects that I never even considered having. So I don't know how you... well. Choose what to cut out of your life and what you choose to focus on. See, so and 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 you're totally on, and I can completely verify that that's exactly, especially the past few months, is exactly what you've done. Is you're just like, okay, I'm a fucking college student, <laughs> like everything else, uh, you know, goes to the wayside. Now, that that takes a a strength and courage in itself to do what you do, you know. So I'm not in any way saying that it doesn't. You. It, it's helpful when you know there's there's an end like that there's you when you know what the light at the end of the tunnel is right like there's a point where the semester ends there's the point where i mean you're not guaranteed results certainly uh you know right. but but you know there's a light at the end of the tunnel the problem with a lot of creative with creative projects or even if you're employed in a field that requires a lot of creativity and does not have more or less guaranteed results. And what I mean by guaranteed results is that, okay, you know, like when I used to be a technician, okay, at, at like a tech company, I get a unit in that I need to repair. Okay. I know what to do. And, and they're like, I replace the motherboard. I put in a new hard drive. Boom. She's done. She's out, you know, and it's all but with a lot of things you can do the work and not see the results. Yeah. I mean, that's a guaranteed result. I know what work has to be done is if I do the work, the result is guaranteed. If I replace the motherboard and the motherboard's big because the motherboard's bad, I have a guaranteed result, right? With creative pursuits, or if you're reaching out to journalists and it's like, Hey, would you like to, you know, include my, my client in your story or something like this? There's no guarantees, you know, but you have to get results of some kind. And that is so stressful. When there are no guaranteed results on your work and it's all a crapshoot or with creative pursuits where you are creating an entire world or something like that, you don't know where it's going to end. You know, the book could be eight chapters, could be 20 and you don't know and you just keep going. And it, and sometimes it seems so unmanageable, um, you know, with, with creative work, it really, it really is a different game and, and it's, it's, it's incredibly stressful and, and and it's tough to sometimes want to take it on because again, it, like if you just had some kind of guaranteed result, you know, you'd, you'd feel better about it. Uh, and, and you'd probably be okay. I'll go in because as long as I do X, Y, Z, we're good. 
you know? Yeah. And, and for things like that, I suppose it's incredibly important to acknowledge the intrinsic motivation for yes, those projects. Absolutely. What are your values? What do you love? What is it you want out of this? What right. are you hoping to achieve? And even just keeping that in mind, I think, can help overcome a lot of those barriers. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're totally right. That's why, I mean. Even if you're afraid of starting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the, the life, I mean, I, and I've been in sales for tech companies and things too. Boy, that's a, you know, you got to meet those quotas. And I mean, that, that, that's, I, I don't ever really want to be into that again. I mean, I've said it a million times. I, I wish I could just go, you know, work in a quarry, you know, where it's like, okay, yeah, maybe you didn't find as much copper today as you should. I don't know, whatever the fuck, you know, they're going for the quarry, the granite. I don't know. But uh, but you put it in, you know, you went through this and even that is still like a result. I mean, just something where like you do X, Y, Z and you've provided value as long as you do X, Y, Z. I mean, I, I kind of miss that sort of work, you know, but a lot of, I mean, that's another thing too. And I don't want to get too far off topic on this, but I feel like the internet has really changed a lot of that to where that kind of guaranteed result work is now basically all automated and a lot of the jobs left have either morphed into where, yeah, you don't have the guaranteed result. And, you know, if you don't get results, uh, regardless of how hard you worked, you know, well, too bad, you're done. You so know? that's interesting. Uh, so like the the dilemma of guaranteed versus non-guaranteed results kind of changes the definition of productivity. Ooh, tell me more. Well, um. I mean, productivity in oh, itself, you know, like yes. productive produce, you're making something that is valued, that is needed. Right. Um, but what if you're making something that nobody wants? Is that yeah. being productive? That, oh, that, you know, I, I see what you're saying. I, I see what you mean. Yeah, that is a huge, huge point. Is that actually, and, and that's part of why I think a lot of people are so fucking stressed out because it's, it's not even productivity in the first place because there's really no guarantee, you know, um, man, I, uh, <laughs> there's a huge subject I want to get into, you know, uh, about like bullshit jobs and all this other stuff, but I'm not going to go there. Uh, can we say that PR is a bullshit job? Is that acceptable to say? It it is a wizardry. It's a sales tactic. <laughs> it's a, I I think it's I said propaganda. I said it. Yes, it is. Um, I said it last week. I hope nobody ever wants to become um, uh, a journalist or a reporter or. Uh, you know, I mean, if you're like a Lois Lane kind of reporter, you know, and you're you're reporting on, oh, this X and Y and Z, what happened? Okay, fine. Like, there's. I the, think it'd be fascinating to be a journalist. Yeah, well, that that there's value in that, but all right, people people don't understand what's going on right now. Okay, like, uh, actually, I just saw a story on Windows Central the other day. Some I don't know thirty three hundred or I mean just like a MSN is firing journalists right and left and what are they doing they're having AI do it 
What? Yeah, they're they're having AI do, and this, I talked about this recently. I said that I think AIs are writing script novels, you know, all kind of, or algorithms, whatever. That, like they're writing all this shit. Okay, but, but what about the journalists that travel to Africa and get the scoop on what's happening in the local government where they're giving out the single, uh, you know, legal ticket for the right. year so that somebody can shoot a black rhino? Clearly, clearly an AI cannot do that. And that is, but you see, that's, that's a guaranteed result. Okay. This is going on. We know this is going on. Go find the story, you know, go get the story. Okay. And, and write it, you know, but you're just writing what happened. You know what I mean? And and you have to be there and maybe you're putting your, you know, stylistic flair upon it. You as a great writer. Right. Yeah. Well, as a great writer, you have to add in some sort of reflection on another aspect of the world, like the rhino example that could be put into the category of conservation and how that fits into that whole effort. Right. But see, here's the thing. So and and I and you're I hear you. There are millions, if not billions of websites on the Internet. And all of these have Alexa rankings. Okay. And I mean, I mean, it's Alexa owned by Amazon, but not like, Hey Alexa. Okay. Um, and everybody's competing for higher Alexa rankings. Everybody, you know, wants, wants the clicks, right. That gets the impressions on the ad and then people get a payday. Okay. You have businesses that started, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, whatever. And these writers there, there are amazing things that happen in the world, but you have to be Carl Sagan basically to explain half of the amazing things that happen in the world. Ultimately, minus, you know, the interesting times that we are in right now, as, as far as what's going on with, you know, very, the, the big things that are going on right now, and you know what they are. Ultimately, life is fairly boring. Ultimately. You know, I mean, because the flip side of what's going on with this is that a lot of people actually try to fill in their day with stuff to justify their meaning and existence in their own minds. Okay. And, and that's where, you know, your point about doing what you intrinsically want to do is is so key, you know, and finding out who you really are. I mean, that, that's a huge problem we have with humanity in general is most human beings have no idea who they are in the first place. And I don't mean who they are as a human being. I mean, who they are as an individual, you know, they have no idea. Okay. These writers have to come up with stuff to write about that people will click on. Okay. I mean, it's, it's classic shit. This is what tabloids have done forever. You know, it's just the internet case of it, but now you multiply what weekly world news and national Enquirer was doing for decades, multiply that by a million. And that's what you've got you know, on, on the internet. That's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Why not have algorithms do it? And then genuine humans can write the really interesting and um, high quality stories. Sure. Sure. Yes. Okay. But you have all, but for, for the past 20 years, you have set a precedent that there are millions of websites to write for. And that means that there are millions of jobs out there. Okay. And then you have the PR industry who has to try and, I mean, it's to the point right now where PR representatives, not the journalists, the other side, you know, who represent the clients who might have something interesting going on, they are coming up with the stories for the writers because the writers are in that bad of a spot 
because of, you know, COVID-19, the protests, you know, and everything else. Like, I mean, they could write about that stuff, but I mean, how much are they going to write about? And and then people, you know, fall out of that. They don't have, they don't know what else to possibly like even write about. They are out of ideas and they're getting fired right and left because also algorithms are coming up with everything and, and writing all this stuff out. I mean, it's just, there are a lot of jobs that are just completely disappearing and everybody's been warning about this, that automation is taking away a lot of jobs, but I don't think they realize that, where the automation is really taking the jobs and, and you know, it's, it's, it's not automation. Isn't just taking the jobs away, say necessarily from the factory worker. In fact, even that isn't happening as much as people think um, because there's some really fine tuned stuff, especially when new technologies come in where you really need the human touch. Automation is killing the internet jobs, which were a, which have been the massive boom in the economy for the past 20 years. And I don't mean the dot com boom. I mean, after that, because okay. people are so predictable that algorithms can make interesting stuff to us. Yeah, all you gotta do because all, you're you don't care if people actually read the shit. You're just trying to get them to click on the link and, and get the ad impressions. You know, like it doesn't it doesn't really matter. You know, and so because you know you don't because that making that clickbait story does not have a guaranteed result. If you can pass that buck onto an algorithm or AI to do it to where you don't have to pay them. And that way, if you don't get the result, it doesn't matter. You know, uh, it's bad. So what does it mean for an AI to be creatively productive? <laughs> well, that's getting metaphysical. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Okay, so journalists are not productive is what you're saying. PR is most, not productive. Yeah, most 99% of journalists are pointless jobs. In fact, I'd almost I'd almost say they they are they are malicious to human civilization. Because I, I mean, you know what the like the, the hot trending stories that I've seen on Twitter even now often enough are like some pop star doesn't know how to wash dishes. Who gives a fuck? You know, like, like that, that's a story, you know, I mean, and, and there are still some reputable journalistic institutions, I think out there that write long form articles that are genuinely informative and interesting. Yeah, sure. The Guardian uh, does. I mean, even whether or not it's all, you know, like 100 uh, percent uh, reality, I don't want to say it's not the truth. I think it's somebody's truth. But whether or not it's 100% the reality of the situation, yes, they do amazing long-form content that is incredibly valuable and great analysis, or at least food for thought, even if you disagree with it. Uh, absolutely, yes. But that's so few and far between. Like, because that's not, it's it's the same problem on YouTube, right? Where, what does YouTube promote? The, the fucking crazy, you know, like, like it, it, it promotes the wild, the weird, it does not promote, and, and the excitable, it does not promote the calm and the rational. Like that's just, that's just not, that's not going to get you. I, I, I know guys, I just did a YouTube special. Um, and granted everybody I talked about, there are largely fairly possible or, fair, or not possible, fairly uh, popular. Okay. But I know guys, I mean, there's guys we've met at events who are brilliant. I don't agree with them all the way, but like they're fucking brilliant. I recognize that. And they're lucky if they can get a thousand followers on YouTube, they should have 2 million because at the very least they're incredibly rational. They're very well-researched, 
well read and they, you know, they at least present evidence of some kind and they get jack shit, you know? And, and so, but if they like put, if, if for the, the thumbnail on their video, they put the crazy face on, if they put an emoji, yeah, <laughs> like a laughing face emoji with the tears coming out on the side, maybe they would get a few thousand more views. <laughs> <laughs> but just, I mean, like that, that's such crap, you know, uh, you're totally right. And I brought that point up on the special too. You're told you're hundred percent right. But I, I mean, this is, I think you raised an absolutely brilliant point is that the bulk of the jobs that exist today aren't, couldn't even be labeled. If we wanted to get Randy in about it, we couldn't even call them productive achievement. You know, like, I mean, they, they wouldn't even come up as that. And. Or at least the productivity would vary from day to day, even if you were putting in a consistent effort. Yeah. 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 We're in a very fucked up situation. Uh, and and that's why it's so much more important to focus on what actually makes you happy. Sure. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I obviously I completely agree. Um, the, the hard part is, is that, you know, you, you got to survive. Right. And, but I think, I think that's actually the other side of this and what this, this exercise that we talked about from HBR here, is that maybe it can help you get to the core of who you are and what you really want. You know, I bring this point up all the time on the show. You've got to be able to answer the question, what do I want? If you don't have a really high precision answer for that, and it has to be for you. It can't be to for someone else. It can't be for your even, frankly, it can't even be for your family. Like, or for your boss. Yeah, it's got to be, what do you want? When you can answer that question, then I think you might not even need this little task or you can write all this stuff down and you'll be able to, you know, go at it with a katana well, the a thing lot is, faster. Yeah, this really, um, I think, is a helpful process because it it can help you put, especially for people who have a sort of like three dimensional thinking method, mm-hmm. like there's some people who are very linear with their thoughts very clear and concise. And then there's some people who are just, you know, scatterbrained all over the place, like going in multiple directions at once. So like for those kinds of people, this really makes it concrete. Like in each specific area of your life, this is what's important to you. And this is what you can do to enhance those results. Right. Um, and I think there's a, a one step in here that said uh, something about, how it's really important to make a list of your successes or your wins, um, even if they're little things. And I think the author is totally right that like people are not told to, uh, you know, celebrate their victories. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Even if they are small. And I think that that's really important to at least give yourself some acknowledgement if other people aren't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like that's that can be a real self-esteem and mood booster mm-hmm. is just saying like, yeah, I did good on that. Or that was that was a really solid job. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I agree with that, too, is that we're yeah, we're really modesty gets pushed on us a little too hard, you know. And well, anyway, 
Yeah. Do less. I mean, I, I, I just hear that and I think it makes sense, you know, uh, like just, all right, cut away some things and maybe get more at the core of who you are and where you want to go. Um, you know, something I, I really notice a lot is that, and, and someone had to highlight this for me, but I think it's a great point, you know, especially when you're online. Um, I mean, you're going to, anything you say, you're, you're almost guaranteed to get some kind of haters or something. Oh, of course. You know, that are going to come after anything that you happen to say. And the point that the person brought up to me was that most people don't like themselves. Why are you worried about what they're saying about you? Yeah, absolutely. And that is such, such a huge concept to, to, to internalize and to take in, you know, and pay attention to that. And I think that that speaks to, yeah, you Find out who you are, you know, and get to the core of who you are and what you want. Um, and then none of that stuff really matters because then you're really achieving your happiness. You're becoming who you want to be, you know, and so on. And then, I mean, and that's that's the ultimate in productivity, I suppose, is becoming yeah. who you want to be. And I think this this list is really helpful in doing that and mm -hmm. helping you figure out who you are and who you want to yes. be. Um, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of journaling. Like yep. I've had a personal journal since I was 15 years old. Yeah. Actually, no, 13. Um, but it's it's really shown me over the years that sometimes I have blind spots and reflecting on certain things that you write out can show you. You can like sometimes have these sudden discoveries about yourself. Yeah. Um. Like, you might not know that you really want to do this in life. Like, you, you might feel it, but mm -hmm. uh, if you don't take the time to really focus on that feeling, you won't know what it's trying to tell you until right. you write it out. Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I agree. That's that's another, another helpful thing. Um, it's just, th there's just so much to distract us today. I mean, anything we can do like this to really hone down, you know, what we really want what we want to be and what's actually helpful for us, you know, going forward. Um, yeah, there's just, there's too much distraction. There's just way too much distraction. Everything's trying to take your attention away and just pare that shit down, you know? Yeah. No, it's important and stick to that. Yeah. Yeah. So doing less, that'll give you your focus. So yeah, I think it'll give you like an artistic and detailed um, perspective, I think. Yeah. Like that's really the main benefit of doing less is that you can do what you do better. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. There it is. So anyway, we have gone well over two hours. <laughs> you don't want to talk about another article? Maybe not another article. I do want to get into something quick though, really okay. fast. Okay. You and I, and this is, this is for fun. So we can end on a, on a good fun note here. You and I have started watching, we finished enterprise. Yeah. Star Trek Enterprise, which that, that's actually, that's the first time you've gotten through that entire series, right? Yes, it is. I, I watched up to season two, season one or season two. I don't remember. Previously. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this is the first time I've seen the entire, uh, the entire series. What did you think of it? Well, it's certainly different from other Star Trek. Yeah. Not uh, different like Picard and Discovery where it's like, no, yeah, no. <laughs> I don't count that as part of the Star Trek universe. Ooh, dangerous words. Okay. Well, uh, 
people can say that it is, but it's not. Yeah, I'm uh, with you. It's fan like, fiction. It's, it's not even on the same <laughs> level. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, Star Trek Enterprise. Uh, it's there, there are a lot of things that happen in it, which I find morally questionable. And I don't think the characters in the series really acknowledge what the, like the full implications of what have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it feels kind of like wild West star Trek, you know, more so than even the original series. Right. Which I think in uh Voyager, which is kind of the idea because it's a prequel to it. But right. yeah, yeah, go ahead. But yeah. I think in Voyager, Janeway said something about captain uh, Kirk and how, that cowboy. enterprise, yeah, it yeah. was like he was Wild West. There weren't, there were no rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think Enterprise is more that, yeah, <laughs> because they don't even have the Prime Directive. Yeah, not yet. Yeah, uh, yeah, they, they don't have any morals. They don't have any guidelines. They're just out searching for new life. Yeah, so it, it's different. But I mean, you, you. It still feels Star Trek, right? And it still fits the... Yeah, yeah. It's still... Um, I, there's great character development and story arcs with the characters. Um, they still explore deep philosophical questions. Um, and there's... Yeah, there, there's just a lot of variety and diversity in the species that they encounter. And, sure. Um, the situations that they have to deal with. Yeah, so you enjoyed it. You liked it overall. I mean, you'd recommend people check it out. Yeah, yeah, I was always excited to watch it. Yeah, yeah. There, would... there were a few episodes that I actually cried at. Yes. <laughs> Admittedly. Yeah. yeah. It was like two or three nights in a row. I felt so bad about it. Yeah, they were all kind of tearjerkers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, all right, let, let me ask this. Did you want to mention the episode or? No, it's okay. Okay. Favorite character of the series? To Paul or Flox? Dr. Flox. Yeah, Flox is so great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to Paul just didn't get the she could have been the most interesting character uh, if they had presented her as more than just a Vulcan character. Yeah, yeah. She I guess she was unique in the fact that she was a Vulcan that could tolerate being around humans. Yeah. Okay. She was addicted to meth. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wasn't actually meth, but it was but kind of kind of similar. Sure. Um, that was an interesting story arc in itself. Yeah. But yeah, there, there was just, there was a lead that they could have taken where she was saying like, this is, I, I'm finally discovering what it means to be Vulcan. And they didn't take advantage of that. I think if they all. had more time, they could have, but yeah, I hear you. I hear you. But she was just a Vulcan character, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and there, there were some interesting personal moments for her. Yes. Uh, which is good, but I, I yeah, Doctor Flux was just so full of like vitality and fun, mm-hmm. and he had these like words of wisdom, and he knew solutions to everything, and uh, he was very strong with his medical ethics. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I was always happy whenever he was in an episode. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I it, it's amazing how often in Star Trek the Doctor characters like really shine um and become at some point you know like i mean like the emh and voyager was tremendous yeah he's a great character um i mean i think mccoy delivered some of the best lines in star trek history 
uh, you know, war is never inevitable. I mean, like there's, there's just so many great things that he ever had. I mean, Dr. Crusher, just going on the list, the, the, you know, they're all pretty, pretty awesome. Um, sure. And in some ways they carry just as much, if not more responsibility than the captain. Yeah. You really have to have a great doctor character uh, because they, they, you know, they have more, they can have more responsibility than the captain, but also they can always override the captain. Right. And you always know that. So you want a character that has to have the strength that you believe that if needed, they could basically, you know, unseat the captain. And, and that's not an easy thing to write when you have such powerful captain characters, but Star Trek somehow always really pulls that off. And I always felt like flocks if he needed to. And there's times where he did, where he absolutely got an archer's face, you know, and said, Hey, like this goes against all my medical ethics. I'm not, I'm not doing this, uh, which is, you know, I mean, there's other times where it kind of went the other way too, but yeah, regardless, powerful, powerful character. I agree. Yeah. He was just, he was so much fun and he was a very powerful character. Um, and they, they did even use him to introduce like alternative relationship styles to the show. Yes. Right. Cause they're polyamorous yeah, mm-hmm. or polygamous or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. They, they each have like three husbands and three, three wives. wives. Yeah. 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 It was just an interesting take and a great reflection on humanity at that time and, and helping it grow and become eventually, you know, uh, at least what the next generation put on display anyway. So, now we switch from that. Okay. I'm going to read, I'm going to very quickly, I'm going to read something from a listener here from the telegram group. Okay. Um, but we switched from that after we were done with that. We're like, I, I convinced you, I, I twisted your arm gently and said, no, no, not next generation. I know you want to watch that next. How about we watch Babylon five? How about we take a little bit of a break from star Trek just for a little bit. And, uh, and we did start watching that. Now, before I talk about that, I want to read this here quick. So this is from the Telegram group. Um, and he was saying that he he loved our episode, that the last episode we did, episode 375. Uh, he says, I also agree with you guys that I actually love the pre-action parts of movies like Jurassic Park and Andromeda Strain. I like the hard stuff, LOL. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Ellen does too. Uh, no. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Uh, because of my, and, and, uh, anyway, uh, because of my belief that quote unquote alien intelligence is likely so alien to us, I have a hard time suspending disbelief for Star Trek or Star Wars, where almost all aliens are bipeds who speak English and are roughly two meters tall, breathe oxygen, etc. Yeah, uh, it is pretty strange, isn't it? They're all humans with funny foreheads or green skin. Yeah, uh, and are usually technologically equivalent to the humans in said fiction. It's the curse of UAP geekdom. LOL. Uh, I thought that was an interesting point um, for him to bring up. We could actually have a whole conversation around that really uh, like, you know, should, would humans or would aliens actually look that different from us, etc. But it is, it is a great point. I mean, Star Trek in itself in enterprise even fell prey to this, where you basically end up with forehead of the week. That's what they used to call it you know, <laughs> yeah. because they would just change something on your forehead or, and you're suddenly you're an alien, you know, they kind of fixed that with the Zindi where they had the four different races of Zindi. That's true. Uh, like the, the insectoids and the, the aquatics were, mm-hmm. were very different species. I think they, yeah. And I think, the reptilians and the sloths. Yeah. Actually it, the sloths was such an interesting choice um, with, with the Zindi in season three, but you know, I like, I think I just said, you know, we started watching Babylon five. So, and, and about liking the hard stuff, 
I feel like Babylon five is the hardest sci you know, hard sci-fi where it pays real attention to the science. I feel like Babylon five is the answer to that. Like that is as hard a science fiction as you can fucking get. Like even the, 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 the star furies, like all have thruster. Like these things don't just move in space. Like, Ooh, somehow they have a magical engine that can make them turn. Like you see the thrusters all over the, you know, the, the, and they're not even really wings, but all over like the pylons that, that allow it to, to twist. Um, not all of the aliens are foreheads of the week. Um, there's a lot of aliens that look very, very strange or like you have Negrath, who's this really tall insect, uh, you know, and you have a, a, a like Kosh is a very weird creature and so on. Um, so I think there's science fiction out there that, you know, television science fiction that kind of answers that, um, you know, of, of wanting that hard science fiction and where it spends time kind of peacefully. So I guess I want to ask you quickly, so we don't have to go much longer, but I mean, what do you, so we're only in season one of Babylon five, but what do you think of Babylon five so far? I really love it. Love it. Not like it. You great. love it. Yeah. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. You're right. Um, it does pay attention to the science. Mm -hmm. Like when they go into separate areas of the station where there's different atmospheric gases for the specific species that lives there, they have to put on gas masks right. to go in. Um, yeah, there's there's all sorts of strange characters and weird alien, and some of them are at very different stages in their technological development. Yes, right. Uh, like the humans know that they're kind of lower on the totem pole in comparison yeah. to some of the races that they deal with. Yes. And while Star Trek has always been great for having beautiful moments, really insightful moments, great mm -hmm. quotes. Um, I feel like you get that every episode with Babylon 5. Yes. There's always something that's like incredibly inspirational and beautiful. And it's amazing to think that somebody wrote this and it exists. And it like the characters are so strong and well-defined. Yeah. Well, you were even saying, you said tonight after the episode that we watched, you're like, you love how the show never ends when you expect it to. There's always like a little epilogue or something that you get to enjoy. Yeah. And I suppose that's just a product of, of me growing up in like the late nineties and two thousands. Mm -hmm. um, all the shows that I've ever watched, it seems like they end like as soon as there's a resolution to the main plot of the story, it ends. But I think with Babylon five, it gets me every time where I think like, okay, this is the ending scene. It's going to end because they finally got the resolution. Yeah. But there's always another scene and I'm pleasantly surprised every time where it's uh, it's an extended resolution where it's not just like the solution to the main thrust of the story, but yeah. you also kind of get to see what happens afterwards. Yeah. Cause you know, I feel like there's a, and I felt this, I felt the exact opposite thing during enterprise a lot. I'll admit and I, I love enterprise. I think enterprise is a great show. Um, but there are a lot of times where the episodes just end as soon as the action is resolved. And you have to assume what happens afterwards. Yeah. And, and I miss it because like next gen and original series, you always had like the moral tale at the end, mm -hmm. you know, where we're, you know, Spock and McCoy are on each side of Kirk and Kirk is laying out, you know, whatever shit he wants to spew. And, and, and Picard might do the same thing in the ready room. And yeah. It's like Aesop's fables. Yeah. Right, right, right. And I always, I love that. And Babylon five delivers that 
every time. And it's, and you're right. You don't expect it. And, but it is such a nice, you know, it's the cherry on top. Right. And, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're really enjoying the show, especially season one, because the hype, when, when somebody tells you they love Babylon five and they, they, you know, they're like, Oh, you have no idea how great this is. The thing is, is they start watching season one. I've, I've said this many times, but they start watching season one and they're like, I don't get it. What's the big deal? And it's now you're, you're loving season one. Yeah. I, I think there are no um, throwaway characters. Mm-hmm. Like every character and every story plays a significant role. Right. It's not like they're there just to be their usual selves or whatever. They're not just like standing at the console like they always are. Right. Yeah, I th- I think most people sell it on the epicness and everything, but the epicness doesn't come until later. But you don't buy the epicness. You don't believe the epicness. You don't accept it until you get the foundation laid in season one with all these characters. You know, that's part of what makes it so amazing as the show, uh, you know, goes on later on. And so it's kind of a victim of its success. Not that it was necessarily a successful show, unfortunately. It's a victim of its success in that when people talk about it, they talk about how amazing it is. But you don't get that sense of that level of amazing in season one, as good as season one is. But that's part of why I wanted you to talk about it, because you're catching it right now. You've never seen it before. You're catching it season one and even season one you're fucking loving. So I'm hoping that's going to convince more people. Yeah. No, I I listen to these characters interacting Mm -hmm. and the way that the shots are filmed, they're given enough time to where they can say and express what they really feel. It can breathe. Yeah. 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 And um, it, it, they do it in such a way that it really resonates and it doesn't feel rushed. Right. It, it feels like you're really there. Um, and it just gives me the sense of like, this is what I want life to be like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I guarantee it's just going to get better. So anyway, we'll, we'll uh, do, I'm sure at some point we'll do like a full, or maybe every time that you're on, maybe we'll do a little Babylon five update. Like, what do you think about it now? You know, and and we'll kind of go from there. Um, Because I mean, it's just such when there is, in my opinion, so much crap as far as entertainment goes. And since like right now, actually there's not a lot of new stuff getting made. If people have the time to go back to the old stuff, this is one that everybody should watch. In my opinion, it's, you know, even, even answering the, the listener, uh, his message, you know, about how he likes the hard stuff. This is the hard stuff, but it's also something that we can all relate to because it, you know, approaches the human condition in such a great way. So anyway, uh, I think we should wrap this baby up. We're about two and a half hours here. So yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and we've, uh, we've got some fun to have. I think, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so Ellen, thank you as always for being on. Uh, Thanks always, for having me on. Yeah, always a pleasure. This this episode took some twists and turns I did not expect, but I think very valuable things getting brought up. Which is, would you say we've been productive? I would say this is very productive. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I love it. But Our, we have other things to do, so let's move on. Yes, let's be horizontally productive. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everyone. We will see all of you woo, on the other side. Thank you for listening to Sovereign Tech, an Osiris One production. Now go out there and make some trouble. <laughs>